And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, and believe me, this is going to be one of the classic archives of the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, just about anything these days can happen. And remember when it used to be confined to these hours of the night, the wee hours, and our our guest is, is really doing us a great favor. He's actually uh, in Miami, so for him it literally is the other side of midnight, as it is in New York and Washington. Out here in the land of enchantment, it's about 10 p.m., and the wind is rising. Uh, we had a major power failure this afternoon. The Internet has gone out three or four times as we were getting ready for the show. So if we suddenly disappear, don't go away because Keith has got the uh, plan B racked up and uh, you will hear something remarkably interesting that we did uh, a couple weeks ago. But uh, we may not be able to get back on the air if I lose power or lose Internet or whatever. I mean, it may be the land of enchantment, but it's a land of enchantment without infrastructure. And I'm praying that the money that the Congress allocated, you know, trillion plus for infrastructure, some of it winds up out here because our power grid is really, I mean, it's like just barely keeping ahead of Texas. And, you know, Texas uh, is not good at all. Anyway, enough housekeeping, ah, housekeeping, housekeeping. Uh, we're going to be talking tonight about time capsules in the solar system, both ours, and I have the perfect person to talk to about this. And when uh, this kind of came up uh, a la the DART mission and the fact that uh, it's my model and a bunch of other people on the team's model that in fact NASA clobbered an ancient time capsule and we have data. So that's gonna be part of our discussion tonight. But the individual that I, reached out to call uh, Nova Spivak has been in the business of creating time capsules for modern humans to send into the solar system for several years now. And he's been on the show a couple of times before. Um, it was time to get him back because there's new news. And for a lot of you folks that may have missed uh, his first appearances, uh, we're going to track back to the beginning of the story. And there is a real MacGuffin because it was Nova who suggested to Elon Musk that the bright red roadster, the first payload on the heavy uh, Falcon Heavy booster that left Earth a couple of years ago or maybe even more, you lose track of time when other stuff is going on, uh, actually carry in the glove compartment a crystalline set uh, of Isaac Asimov's incredibly prescient foundation trilogy and so we may actually have uh, nova go uh, briefly into that story because that was the first of a modern set of time capsules as i was running upstairs to get something that i'd obviously forgotten because the studio is downstairs and i was listening to the wind kind of howling around the eaves outside it's really it's a very dramatic night here in new mexico i realized that i had not sent to Keith a link, which is very important because it turns out in this growth industry of sending time capsules in the modern era around the solar system, that Eric Burgess and me and Carl Sagan were the first. And uh, when we get uh, when we get Nova on, I, I will tell that story briefly for those of you who are not uh, uh, cognizant of it. 
in the meantime, uh, for those who are new, what you want to do, we have a section of the show page on the Internet called Radio with Pictures. So what you want to do is you want to go to our URL, which is the other side of midnight.com. That's how you find us, the other side of midnight.com, except no substitutes. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, because I love writing dramatically, uh, time capsules in the solar system, ours and theirs. So you click on that. That takes you to the guest page. Right under the guest page banner, you will see says fastings to items, click on my name. That takes you down to the page section where we have news. And this week, uh, speaking of theirs, uh, NASA officially announced its UFO study team, which will include scientists, communications experts, and an actual astronaut, um, uh, Scott Kelly, uh, Mark Kelly's brother, who spent a lot of time on the space station, I think, I, I forget which one spent like over a year on the on the uh, International Space Station, and there was all kinds of interesting longitudinal studies of their biology and medicine, and and I think it was Scott. Anyway, their telomeres grew, and telomeres. Well, we'll talk to know about that, but telomeres are important in biology, and the common wisdom is that the shorter your telomeres, the shorter your lifespan. So Scott's, or was it Mark? I don't remember. When they, when it, the one of the brothers spent the uh, the uh, year on the space station, with the other brother being a, being that he was a twin, being the control on Earth, um, his telomeres lengthened. And I have not followed the story to know whether they went back to quote normal on the ground or not. That's something that uh, one of our listeners can find out. Google is your friend, and then you can email us, or you can send, or you can call up on uh, Blog Talk when we open calls at the end of the show, and you can tell us. Anyway, uh, item number one is this space.com story on the NASA UFO study, which contains kind of the bare outlines. Item number two right under it is the actual link to the study. This is the announcement. Uh, there's a link in the announcement on the NASA dot uh, gov homepage in Washington to the actual PDF, which describes in great detail who's involved, what their protocols are going to be, and all that. I mean, did you ever think, did you ever imagine time when NASA would announce officially it's looking into UFOs? Now, of course, they've changed the name uh, per the Pentagon Office for All Anomaly Research or something, and the the operative term is UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. You know, you can't be anybody in the U.S. government without an acronym. But um, anyway, that's all going on. At the same time, this takes us down to item number three. There is a study which was documented by a news story in Newsweek, um, which reached the conclusion that if the U.S. government announced that we had found aliens, this announcement could trigger a global conflict a la thermonuclear World War III. And that would be a bad hair day for everybody. And I think it is such drivel and fear porn. But what I'm interested in is every time you make one step forward in understanding our real environment and who's been interacting with us and how ancient we are, and that's back to the subject of time capsules. Um, the fear porn artists 
have to get their digs in. And so they have uh, published this study. I'm not quite sure who did the study and where and all that's in the article. So go read it. But it, it may or may not be worth your time other than to monitor the fact that Newton's, you know, um, uh, second law is uh, third law is fully in operation for every positive action on this front. There is a negative reaction. And this is incredibly reactionary. Um, there is one little germ of truth, I believe, in the study, because they do talk about a government that tries to keep its contact with aliens or ETs uh, secret from everybody else on Earth. But, of course, what gives the lie to that perspective is that the study authors obviously do not understand or are not willing to acknowledge publicly that all governments on earth worthy of their salt have known we've been visited both in the ancient past and contemporaneously, even now uh, in whatever's going on in the skies over Ukraine. And so the idea of keeping, you know, contact and super secret technologies uh, apart from the rest of the world and somehow gaining a geopolitical edge, you know, is just somebody's wet dream. Um, and I wonder if Henry Kissinger was involved in the study. Anyway, um, item number four. Now, as you know, we're going to talk a lot about this tonight because in our model, what NASA did with the DART, which was the directed uh, asteroid uh, uh, redirection test uh, on the 26th of September, sending a 1,200-pound uh, vending machine-sized spacecraft on a 10-month journey out to the asteroid belt, kind of, uh, 7 million miles away when this object was closest, um, and clobbering it by direct impact, that mission turns out to be much more interesting than the mainstream has kind of cottoned to as yet. Because as you know from the last couple, three weeks, as we presented data on the background and the imagery and the analysis of the orbit change of the impact with the uh, the little satellite of Didymos. Didymos was the big guy, half a mile wide object being orbited every 11 hours, 55 minutes by a little guy, uh, less than 600 foot uh, across uh, secondary satellite moonlit called Dimorphos. And these are both Greek and they both have very interesting higher level, you know, symbolic names. So if you want to Google them and find out what they mean, or wait till Ron comes on, maybe in the third hour, and tells us all again what they both mean. I mean, the choice of the of the names in NASA is never trivial, because they are steeped, steeped, steeped in mythology, deep level mythology, five layers, Emily Dickinsonian layers deep. And so when I saw the two names, I thought, well, there really has to be uh, something amazing about the other levels of meaning. And it turns out for dimorphos, which means two forms, that that meaning, frankly, could be right in your face about what they really did, that they're not copying to yet. Now, they may never, but the fact that there are all kinds of honest observers looking at these remnants of the Didymo system after impact all over the world, amateurs with incredibly good equipment who have spotted all kinds of interesting anomalies after the impact three plus weeks ago, uh, tells me that maybe there will be some, you know, come to Jesus moments at, on the part of NASA and they will finally kind of try to tell us the truth. 
one of the interesting things is that NASA uh, this week published a new Hubble image, which is item number four in our radio with pictures. And if you look very carefully, you'll see there that uh, several things happened. And these photographs are posted in previous weeks, so I did not duplicate them tonight. But as you know, in the days after impact, the Didymo system grew an extraordinarily long tail pointing away from the sun, very narrow, looking almost like some kind of a searchlight beam that was that narrow. The conventional model, of course, is that it's composed of very tiny, tiny micron-sized flecks of dust. And because they're so tiny, they're very light, and the solar radiation pressure can move them around. And so they tend to blow away from the sun and give you comet tails, dust tails, and the dust tail out behind uh, Didymos, the Didymos system. Well, in the last few days, between the 2nd and the 8th, which is a few days, uh, Hubble spotted another tail. So the Didymo system after impact has now grown two tails. And I'm willing to bet that one of them is a dust tail and the other one is an ion tail. And we will not get into any of those details until I bring uh, uh, Nova Spivak on. So without further ado, uh, if you want to kind of follow along under the fast links to items, you'll see fast links to bios. Click on that, and that will take you to uh, 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 Nova's bio, which I think is here. We are okay. Nova Spivak is a technology entrepreneur, an investor, an innovator, a futurist with a career spanning more than two decades of industry-leading breakthroughs. He has helped to build dozens of ventures and nearly 100 patents, collectively generating billions of dollars in market value, including multiple IPOs and acquisitions by Apple, Facebook, Samsung, Disney, Mamaus, and others. Nova's ranked among the top 20 futurists worldwide and is a top LA power player in technology. He was, has advised governments, presidential campaigns, Fortune 10 global corporations, leading consumer brands, venture funds, incubators, and tech startups. And that's all kind of, you know, tech street talk. He is also the founder and CEO of Magical, a science and technology venture studio based in Los Angeles, where he works as a venture producer to fund and incubate breakthrough companies. Um, he flew to the edge of space in 1999, did zero gravity training with Peter Diamandis and Richard Garriott, with the Russian Air Force and the Russian Space Agency. But probably most interesting and relevant to tonight is he is the co-founder and chairman of the Arch Mission Foundation, which is building a solar system scale backup of Earth. The Arch Mission successfully launched the first permanent library into space February 6, 2018, as the secret payload of Elon Musk's uh, Falcon Heavy test launch of his bright red roadster. A second archive landed on the moon in 2019 uh, with SpaceIL containing the Wikipedia and many other data sets of compendiums of, in fact, the entire known history of Earth. And rather than read from a dry, you know, thing you can read yourself, let me bring on my guest tonight, Nova Spivak, Come on down. Well, hello. Hi there. It's been too long. It's been a while. All kinds of really cool stuff is going on. 
But for those who are kind of new to this game, kind of start at square run. How did Nova Spivak, uh, investor, money guy, tech innovator, written up by Fortune, how did he wind up getting into the huge humanity time capsule business and spreading them around the solar system? Well, since you asked, um, <laughs> did I ever tell you about the dream I had when I was eight? No. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to digress. When I was uh, eight years old, I had a very unusual dream uh, in which I saw my life as an adult. Um, wow. When there was a, uh, some kind of an environmental catastrophe that caused the, something like a nuclear winter. It caused the air to be harmful to breathe. And governments of the world knew about this before it happened. This is all in your dream. I was eight, yeah. Um, the governments of the world had known about this, and they'd been planning for it for decades. Um, because not only was it toxic, but it was like a nuclear winter is very cold. Um, and so life on the surface of Earth uh, basically became unsustainable uh, when this event took place. Um, they prepared by building all of these underground cities to try to shelter you know, sufficient parts of the population to rebuild afterwards. And there was a lottery system um, that would have it. I was one of the people that got to go to one of these underground cities. Um, the rest of the people who did not go to these cities perished. Mm. Um, those of us who did... This is a hell of a dream for an eight-year-old. You realize yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah. Those you must of have us been who, scared shitless. We can say no, that. I mean, in the dream, it was... I wasn't scared at all. I was living my life as an adult in the dream. Oh, and really? uh, anyway, so we ended up living in these underground cities, which were, you know, kind of like THX 1138, kind of, you know, underground, very kind of institutional government design shelters mm -hmm. with many, many, many levels. Each one could house something like 20,000 people. They were big. Um, or the, and, or the, uh, the salt mines in uh, Deep Impact. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so it was not the greatest lifestyle living in these underground cities. Um, it was pretty boring and, you know, claustrophobic. Um, as, as things developed, I, became, I, I had been in that dream, in the dream, I had been a technical or scientific person um, as, um, as an adult, and, and I made friends with the other scientists and people like that. Uh, and we decided to begin a study of the air quality on the surface. And so in this dream, over many years, we systematically started doing air sampling and other scientific tests of temperature and, and atmospheric parameters on the surface, basically at the top of these underground cities, which are like big cylinders. Um, there were all of these sort of air intakes and filters and sensors and all kinds of things. So we, we, we kind of would go up there to the, you know, many, many, many levels up to the surface. And you, know, you had to wear these special suits and everything. And we would, you know, test these instruments and bring down the data. And so we started graphing this data over a long period of time. And we were able to project um, that, you know, several years off into the future, um, the conditions were going to start to improve at least enough that humans could live on the surface again. It was still going to be an ice age, but it wasn't going to be fatal. Okay, question, air wasn't question. Yeah. Was this one dream yeah, or one a dream. recurring dream? 
No, this was one dream. So, um, did you ever see the Star Trek Generations where Picard yeah. goes into kind of some kind of shock on the bridge? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and in 20 Very minutes, cool. he lives his entire life as an ET on some other planet. Yeah, that's the you know kind that's of like what, that's what this sounds like. It's it's like what was it Rumpelstiltskin or something like that? Was, you know those kind of stories of people who fall asleep. You know, and then right. they they um, you know they live an entire life, and then they wake up. It's only fifteen minutes has gone by. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's so it continues, and um, we we went to the authorities and told them about our data. Um, the other thing that we found was that the cylinders had been built into permafrost, and as as the temperature oh. was projected to increase the cylinders were going to start to sink. And at a certain point, all of the filtration systems at the top would be under the mud. And so we told the authorities about this and they told us, you know, don't scare everybody. This is not going to happen. It's just your data might not be correct. We don't want to get people's hopes up. You know, this is classified. You can't talk about this. Anyway, we continued to do our studies and we made secret preparations to leave ahead of this event of, of the cylinder sinking and try to find a place where we could set up a base camp. And then we would try to salvage as much as we could and, and get as many people to come with us as possible before these things sank. So we went off, um, some of us snuck out and we, we scouted this kind of Alaskan style, kind of very cold and snowy and windy terrain, eventually finding an area with natural caves, you know, many, many kilometers away. Um, but that was a place where we felt we could establish a, a, a base camp. So we set up a camp, uh, very primitive conditions. And then um, a year or so, a couple of years later, I'm not sure how long it was, but we, when this, when this um, warming was taking place and the cylinders were sinking, we, we went back and tried to convince more people to come with us. And we got a lot of equipment and medical supplies and every kind of book or tool we could get. And we took it with a, couple hundred people who we could convince to leave. Everybody else stayed and uh, we set up our camp and the people who stayed years later ended up all suffocating when these things went under the mud. Mm. So then we were left, you know, a few hundred people living in these kind of caves. It was still pretty cold um, and, you know, harsh and we didn't have electricity. We didn't have basic things, um, but we built sort of community and survived. And at that point, you know, now I was older and all of us who were the elders at that point um, decided that since we had no contact with anybody else anywhere on the, anywhere else on earth, we didn't know if we were the last people alive, but we felt that you know, we were the people who had lived in the previous world. And it was our responsibility to try to preserve whatever we knew for future generations. So uh, we had a series of meetings about what to do. And we eventually came up with this idea that we would, interview everybody and record all of their knowledge uh, in a book uh, or a set of books, Mm -hmm. which would sort of be an encyclopedia of everything we knew that might be useful. And so we elected one person to, to do that. And that person turned out to be me. And the title was of, of that role was the keeper of the book. So I became the keeper of the book and spent the rest of that life interviewing people. A time capsule. Yeah, writing their stories in this book. And then I died. The dream continued, and it followed my descendants 
for I don't know how many generations, maybe dozens or hundred generations. It's really hard to tell because it's sped up. Um, but as it sped up, the atmosphere changed and improved, and eventually this Arctic or Ice Age kind of climate subsided, and it became more of a normal climate like we're used to now. Um, and at that point, the way the dream ended was that uh, I was kind of gliding along the forest floor at, during at magic hour in the evening mm-hmm. at dusk. And uh, off in the distance, there was this hill through the trees and you could see these natural caves. And I recognized one of those caves as the one that you know was my cave. And as we got closer, I could see, you know, there was a man sitting at a table in the cave writing in this big book. So at this point in the dream, you're a great, great, great descendant. I'm at, well, I'm a camera looking at a descendant, um, and he's writing in this book, and behind him is, I guess, his wife doing something, preparing a meal maybe, and it just kind of gets closer, 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 and then it ends. Then I woke up, you know, and as an eight-year-old, most of this didn't register. I mean, it, I had no framework, you know, for what I, for, for this dream, but I remembered it very clearly. And I was kind of amazed because it was a pretty cool dream. Um, but the interesting thing about it is this dream has remained like a memory, very, very clear my entire life. So I remember everything. I remember the scenes. I remember all the details. I remember it like I, you know, better than a normal memory and certainly better than any other dream I ever had. So it's a sort of a strange thing. It's not like a normal dream because you know how dreams fade. Yeah. This doesn't fade. This doesn't fade. I can see it. I can remember it just like, you know, like it happened an hour ago. So it's, it's really kind of a strange thing. So anyway, I didn't know what to make of it. I just kind of forgot about it. Didn't think about it. But then, um, you know, decades later when I was, working in tech and working on all this AI and knowledge related stuff. Somehow my path kind of led me back to knowledge and cataloging, cataloging knowledge. And, you know, at one point, I don't know why, but I started thinking, I wonder, you know, what would happen if there was some kind of extinction level event on earth, what would happen to all of our history and knowledge? And as I started researching it, it became you know, very apparent very quickly that um, we actually live in the most ephemeral civilization that's ever, ever existed. Ever, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Previous civilizations, ancient civilizations, you know, preserved their knowledge in stone yep. or, 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 you know, ceramic or metal, you know. Our knowledge is preserved in, you know, paper and plastic um, or magnetic media that won't last. And, you know, if something terrible were to happen, any kind of, serious event or you know it doesn't even have to be an extinction level event but well even books are ephemeral yeah of course fragile incredibly fragile yeah Uh, you know and microfilm and film and all these different technologies that we've developed um most of which we can't even read anymore you know they have a very short shelf life digital technologies also um we 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 forget how to read them but they also oxidize um so it turns out as i researched this that pretty much all of the, the knowledge that we've amassed would be gone in a few decades at most um, if the power went out, if it didn't come back on. Um, and so, um, you know, there, 
We're we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it there because I've got a really crucial question, but I want you to finish the outline, the arc of this amazing story. And when you say it kind of drifted away, I presume you mean it wasn't the center of your focus, but when you started thinking about the subject, the details of the dream came back. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak. He is architect of... uh, a kind of a cottage industry of dedicated putting time capsules in places where they will be essentially immortal out in the solar system. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, October 22nd of 2022. A lot of twos there. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak, who is the architect of a whole new generation of modern time capsules, trying to preserve, encapsulate in readable media that are both readily understandable by some future descendants of us, if we're still here, or someone from out there, if they kind of wander by, and are long enough lived that they will physically survive the vicissitudes of being in a vacuum base, like on the moon. We're going to get to all this. So Nova, when, when you're eight, you have this astonishing dream which is kind of like a fast forward of your life, your mission in the dream. And then you look at successors 
descendants, God knows how many generations, and then it comes up to a denouement and then ends and you wake up and you go, wow, that was cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was sort of amazed. Um, but, you know, also as an eight-year-old kid, you don't know that dreams aren't usually like that. So. Now, did you have any reference like Twilight Zone, Star Trek, no, the card no. thingy? So, no. So this was like out of the blue. Yeah. I mean, it was, what, the 70s? Yeah. You know, I was, so a lot of that stuff hadn't happened yet. Um, and I was a kid not really exposed to much media. Um, so, you know, tr- concepts like nuclear winter and you know, time capsules, things like that were not in my world. So it was a lot of stuff I didn't understand, actually. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, rather than jump to the end, why don't we go through and track through uh, what you have decided to do in this life and then what your perspectives now as a mature adult looking back at that dream what do you think it might have been saying and where it might have come from? Okay. Uh, so later in my career, when I ended up working on knowledge-based technologies, AI and knowledge management and, and semantic technologies and so forth, um, I got interested in, in how we would preserve knowledge and how we could communicate knowledge across cultures or maybe even species um, and it led me to look at the ephemerality of our civilization and its knowledge. Um, and as I learned more about that, uh, I, I decided it would be an interesting project to try to preserve our civilization's knowledge for a longer period of time. Um, you know, because if anything uh, were to happen, any extinction-level event or a nuclear war, anything like that, uh, we would lose most, if not all, of our history, science, culture, or, you know, all the stuff that we've worked so hard for, uh, we'd lose it. It would be gone um, in a matter of decades because the media, the storage media we use. Well, even much sooner, because if you lose electricity, you lose everything. Right. Well, I mean, books, you know, depending on the condition could last, you know, 50 to a hundred years or a few hundred years. If they're really, yeah, they don't last very well. Microbes. Yeah. Come on. Water. Most, of, most of our books yep. without electricity, air conditioning, you know, they will go. So one generation. Did you ever read an incredible novel called The Earth Abides by George Stewart? No. Oh, uh, he's gone. But I'm going to get his his guy on who's kind of taken over the role. George Stewart was an academic in Berkeley in the 60s who wrote this incredible prophetic novel kind of like what you just described, except set in the Bay Area, and the bridges are kind of like the time markers of the original naive, oh, we can put it all back together in five years. Uh, the, the, the Soviets launch a biological attack and wipe out almost everybody, but leave all the infrastructure intact. Mm-hmm. And then the happy guys, the, 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 the positive, optimistic guys say, oh, we can just put it back together and then the novel tracks through how that just is not possible. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. an incredibly prescient novel for, unfortunately, now. Yeah. Well, um, as I looked into this, we found there had been some attempts at designing storage media that could survive a nuclear war. Um, different types of disks, 
had been created and tested at Los Alamos, uh, in fact, using nickel as a storage medium, writing it into nickel and using analog uh, etching rather than some kind of digital storage so that you could see it with a microscope. So like, think of it as... Like with lasers? Um, laser, lasers like is one way to do beam. it. That was one way, yeah. Using um, electron beams was one way, but that was very expensive and, sl- and, and sort of slow. Um, later, um, a scientist out, um, out of Kodak named Bruce Hodd developed um, a way to um, grow uh, nickel uh, surface relief images um, sort of the way that you grow um, computer chips, oh. semiconductors. Crystal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially growing the nickel with a, a kind of electrolysis process, depositing it in one atom at a time on glass that had been etched with a laser, and then growing the nickel and then generating um, these sort of nickel disks this way. He, he, he developed a way to do this quickly. And so essentially you could think of it as microfiche, but smaller. So it's nanofiche, not microfiche. Mm-hmm. The images are much smaller. Um, but it's, and they're in nickel rather than in, you know, photographic film. And nickel is an element. It doesn't decay. It doesn't oxidize. Um, and uh, they did a lot of testing and found that this medium uh, could last for millions or wow. even billions of years. And all you would need was the equivalent of a 16th, 17th, 18th century microscope. Yeah, 17th century microscope. And so basically... Um, the microscope technology that, that we had in the 1700s was sufficient to magnify uh, these to the extent that you could read them. So, so wait, wait, wait. Let me, I'm, I'm going to interrupt now because, you know, I'm, if I get lost, other people can get lost too. How would someone 10,000 years from now, we had a nuclear winter, we're all back to caves, you know, we're trying to figure out what those big hulking buildings are that are decaying in ruin. And there are no books left, of course. How do they know when they find a disc with nickel on it that they should look at it with a microscope? Right. Well, what we actually did was um, these discs are layers, uh, many layers of of discs actually in a stack. You could think of it as like a a stack of discs. Um, Now, the ones we sent to space are super thin. So a stack of discs is actually no thicker than a normal CD that Mm. has many discs in it. But uh, if we put them on Earth, of course, they could be thicker because we don't have any reason to make them thin. There's no mass limitation. Um, but what we do is at the, at the top, the images are much larger than naked eye visible. So you can, t- you can see um, that there's stuff here. You can, see, you can see words and images etched on the top layer that you can read with your naked eye. But how do you know the language it'll survive? Mm, well, we use pictures. So the first l- few layers of these discs disk stacks, we call them arcs, um, are really a primer that um, what we did was we took all the visual dictionaries that have ever been published um, in every language. There's a whole bunch of visual dictionaries that translate into five languages, actually. Hmm. We we took all of the visual dictionaries that exist um, and we printed them onto this nickel. So you the, mean like those little pictograms you see in restrooms on airlines in Italy or Russia mm-hmm. or whatever? Well, yeah, but there actually are some amazing visual dictionaries that were created for kids that are really, really good that have, you know, the earth, 
with every type of earth system or biology or, you know, technologies of various kinds. They go into huge detail and they're beautiful with, you know, all kinds of expanded diagrams and, and call outs that show, you know, what is each thing? What is it called in multiple languages? You know, a house with every part of a house, how it's built and everything visually illustrated um, with everything identified in five languages, for example. Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of these books. They're great. Um, so what we did is we took all these visual dictionaries, which collectively illustrate perhaps a million or more concepts um, and connect them to words in multiple languages. We took all of those and we etched them um, to nanofiche. And then the next layers were uh, a data set uh, basically that um, has every known language on earth translated starting with those five languages it then translates into every known language that we've that we that we know of alive or dead every single language so there's a there's a about a i don't know thousands of languages and billions of translations between them so it goes from the pictures of you know everything that you know we know of in our kind of day-to-day lives to five languages and then from those five languages to every other language so it, it builds a conceptual model that's anchored in pictures because you have, you have to have something you know, that these words refer to for the data set to have any meaning. Otherwise, it's, it's symbolic, but what does it mean? Right? But here, we're anchoring it in pictures. So we had to make one key assumption, which is that whoever finds this in the future, the audience that we're writing it for, has, they have eyes. Um, and they're you know, roughly our size. They can see things of this scale. They can see these pictures. As long as they can see these pictures, you know, the pictures connect to symbols, the symbols connect to words, the words then connect to you know, language models that are fully fleshed out and translated to every other language. And then from there, once the languages have been anchored in pictures, we have the Wikipedia, the full English Wikipedia, um, something like a thousand dictionaries and encyclopedias, um, thirty thousand uh, books covering every subject, every language at a university level, um, and then a whole bunch of secret archives of interesting collections of things, including <laughs> the secret history of the world, everything to know, everything about UFOs, you know, everything about every spiritual tradition, uh, you know, and 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 many many other secret archives. David Copperfield's. All of the secrets to all of his magic tricks are in there. He gave them to us. And many, many interesting vaults uh, are in there. All right. Let me ask you another dumb question. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got data at a nano level that requires a microscope to read it, but you've got something big enough on the nickel-coated glass discs. Glass is very Well, those are different. So, no. So, let's, let's be clear. Glass is used to make these nickel discs, but there's two different technologies that we use. Okay. Uh, what we said with Elon Musk was was actually written with a femtosecond laser into a quartz crystal, and that was digital data. So the the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy was sent in his roadster inside of a quartz crystal um, using this special technology for etching, essentially um, creating tiny little um, diffractive dots inside this crystal that could be read um, with a special type of uh, microscope, but that 
technology is digital. So you'd have to have very advanced technology to read it. The nickel technology, um, we use glass to grow the nickel, but the nickel itself is naked eye visible. You don't need any kind of digital technology to see and interpret what's on the disc. So these are just sheets, pictures. These are just sheets of nickel. They're, they are, yeah, they are exactly the size and shape of a DVD. But if you look at them under a microscope, they've got, you know, on each layer about 20,000 tiny little black and white images, you know, photographic images. So if your archive is meant to store the entire current knowledge of humanity, you got to have more than one nickel disc, right? Oh, absolutely. What uh, happens fact, if they well, get well, separated? Well, okay. So first of all, just to be clear, the way this disc stack is designed, it's like a staircase of knowledge. So first it starts at you know, big enough things that you can see them and you know it's interesting. They teach you what you need to, to get to the smaller uh, levels, including how to build a better microscope. And ultimately, these lay the primer also includes everything you need to know to build a computer and all the software to read the digital layers, because we also have digital layers mm. that store more data. But obviously, you need to know how to read all that. So we included all of the software, all of the codecs, all of everything you would need. This sounds so daunting because people have no idea. You know, they've seen all these movies, mm-hmm. End of the World and Struggling Survivors. I mean, George Stewart's novel is very naive. Oh, we'll just pick up the pieces. You have no idea how hard this is. Yeah, well, this well, is a Rosetta you, you, you probably know. Well, I know because yeah, we built You've been at it, but, but, but for the average listener, the average person, this is almost impossible because we are so dumb without education. Well, the idea was to, to put, you know, education into the discs. So we built everything you, everything you need, starting from pictures, to get to the ability to fully understand the Wikipedia and everything in it. But that means you have to have the whole damn archive. You can't have one disc. The discs are, well, the way we design these, the discs are actually stuck together with epoxy. So it, it's difficult to separate the discs. If that were to happen, um, well, we have... If, if they're stuck together with epoxy, like, 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 like a stack, how do you mm-hmm. get access to the surface where the nano images are? The epoxy, it doesn't touch, doesn't cover the images. It's in the central core. There's a, there's a cutout. There's a, there's a, just like any DVD... The circle in the middle, right? And the, the discs are glued together at that point in the center, so you can separate them without damaging the data. So whoever finds it and realizes mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of stuff here knows mm-hmm. enough to separate the discs. Eventually, they'll figure out how to do that. Okay. Eventually, they'll figure out how to do that because it's not. It's, it's it, it, you could break it. It's not. It's not glued together so so uh, thickly that it would be hard to separate them, but it holds them together. Now, remember, the, the ones that we designed for space are different than the ones that we designed for Earth. Right. And we, we have both locations. So um, ultimately, you know, the goal was initially, let's put it on the moon. Um, and we did actually deliver it to the moon, although it had a rather hard landing. <laughs> it's possibly vaporized all over the surface. No, 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 no. The numbers... The, no, it, it's there. It's just in the dust. I think, yeah. It's, our, just, our stu- it's hidden in the, all that moon dust. 
well our our we did a model of the of the of the crash of, of space IL's bear sheet lander right and concluded that it was very likely that the disk actually survived uh, because of the fact that it was stronger than a black box very sec- flexible and thin very light it was on the out, it was on the outside of the spacecraft or the perimeter of it um, and it wouldn't have uh, the heat was not sufficient to melt it um, so the only issue would be where you know it depending on how the impact place and where it was at the moment of impact you know was it actually impacted or was it thrown did it bounce yeah. yeah anyway long uh, one six gravity parabolic arc I threw an arrow into the air. It fell to earth. I know not where. Right. It may be 30 kilometers downfield. We don't know. But in any case, um, just to be safe, we're sending it again. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, it's going to be flying. We we have a new version of it. It's going to be flying um, on the upcoming, on the astrobotic mission it's going. Ah, redundant. Redundant. Mm -hmm. So the plan, the ARC mission's plan is redundant copies all over the place, as many as we can afford to make. So space, uh, many locations, not only on the moon. I mean, the moon is a great location because any advanced civilization on Earth will eventually go there and they'll find all these spacecrafts wrecked on the moon and hopefully some of these crash sites and you know, maybe some intact spacecraft in the future that contain the arcs, um, and they'll find them eventually. Uh, you know, they'll find Elon Musk Roadster, which is a weird object. Um, and maybe they'll find that crystal. Did you see those bizarre stories that were floated around the uh, the internet right after he launched that incredible experiment? And they're saying, oh, it's going to be torn to shreds by radiation. Yeah, but not on this. Well, the the you know certain you know all the any plastics or anything like that, sure. But the metal won't. The metal will still be there. The yeah. car is the frame will be there, and the quartz disc will be there for you know as long as the solar system lasts. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the plan was to put these in as many places as we can. The moon is a good storage location, but actually, uh, I'm actually more interested in putting the, uh, these into Lagrange points. And so our real goal is to deliver these to multiple Lagrange points around the solar system and to to do it in a way where they attract attention so that anybody with a telescope who's looking at that location um, would be able to see that there's something there that seems artificial um and then maybe eventually we'll go there and get it of course well hang hang on hang on we have a mission tonight called lucy Mm -hmm. which is headed for the forward lagrange point of jupiter i think that's the l4 position Mm -hmm. and it's going to stay it's going to go from asteroid to asteroid and wind up kind of just you know cohabiting with Mm -hmm. all the other bizarre space junk that's there yeah how does it does it carry a time capsule it does. Lucy actually has a simple plaque with some, some quotes by famous people. Um, it's too bad they didn't know about our technology because, you know, we can store 30 million pages in the space of their plaque. Um, but their plaque is nice. It is a time capsule. It's a very basic one. But um, nonetheless, yes, it'll be there. Well, they probably got um, the idea from us. Huh. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are actually a number of time capsules around the solar system. Um, the, the ones that you inspired with Carl Sagan, of course, are very famous. Yeah, well, they're uh, leaving. They're some of them are leaving, into, going well, into the, the blackness of space yeah. where nobody will probably ever find them, unfortunately. Uh, you never sure. know. Not you never sure. know. Yeah. But we want to put – ours are being put in places where it's easy to find them, hopefully. Um, and that includes Earth. Uh, so on the surface of Earth um, or under the surface, 
in caves or in other locations, um, bunkers and, and whatnot. Uh, we also want to store many copies redundantly around the planet um, in monuments, perhaps designed to survive but be found. Um, and those, of course, can also include microscopes and tools and all kinds of other stuff. We don't have the, the same kind of uh, mass limitations that we have with a spacecraft. So the, plan, the ARC mission's plan is to build these bunkers um, or find existing bunkers and you know, put copies of these archives into all of these locations for safekeeping. And, um, of course, there... Well, you larger. sent me a link, which we got a whole bunch of stuff up in Radio Pictures under under um, uh, Nova's uh, section. Just click on Nova and, uh, you know, follow the links and it'll take you to his section of Radio Pictures. At the very end, toward the end, I think it's the second to last item, you send a list of time capsules. Mm-hmm. There are apparently something between 10,000 and 15,000 time capsules worldwide that we're aware of uh, some ancient ones and most of them are kind of modern ones and they're probably, well, they, they come in a variety of, of flavors. There are, there are, you know, inscriptions, there's digital stuff, which of course will go away. Uh, but there's enough of them redundancy that something may survive to be found if we're not. Yeah. But it might be, you know, the high school memories of the class of 1955. Exactly. exactly yes. So, you know, trying to make redundant time capsules that are really useful, um, you know, is a, is, a, is a specific type of task. It's an art form. It's, I mean, you know, you're, you're basically creating an industry. Well, it would be an industry if somebody would pay for it. But it's definitely, uh, it's, a cult- it's a grand cultural project, like a Gothic cathedral. It's a, it's a project which is multidisciplinary. So is, is, is this in the show where you need to pitch for money to do more of these? Because well, if so anybody, please, go if, ahead. Yes. Well, if anybody listening, um, you know, happens to be very wealthy and wants to help support this, it's it is a way to well, create a legacy. What about Musk? He said, interrupting. Um. Yeah. Potentially. I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is really top of mind for him right now. Um, but let's let's you know put a pin in that maybe. In any well, case, remember he has a Twitter site, and yes, all well, our, and all, I, our I, all our people <laughs> can send him emails saying, for God's sake, so on. Fund the arts arts missions time capsule because you may not save humankind by putting the you know thousands of people on Mars in time. Well, we should we should at the very least the the arc mission should put a disc on everything that's going to remain in space or on another planet. Yep. Um, Because you know basically it's that simple. It's a numbers game. If you put enough copies in enough places, some of them are going to survive. And and so this is a way to guarantee. For the first time in human history, by the way, we can statistically guarantee that our civilization will not be lost. Um, actually, there have been thousands of civilizations, and they've all been lost, you know, with a few exceptions. Um, they've all been lost. And you know, little bits and pieces remain here and there. Um, but we are the first civilization, if the Ark mission can actually complete what we're trying to do, we'll be able to be the first civilization that can make that guarantee for the first time in history that it won't be lost and we can, you know, we can prove that it won't be lost because we have enough copies in enough places that there is no way, you know, an extinction level event on even at a planetary level to wipe out the knowledge base. And so at least for as long as our solar system lasts, the knowledge base will last. Now, of course, 
When we get really fancy, we can start moving it out of the solar system as well. Uh, See, there are lots this of, was lots of ways like, to do that. This is kind of like the tragedy of um, Eric and me talking with Carl there at JPL uh, after we got back from our uh, sojourn that gave – they took us down to see Pioneer. And he and I walked up and looked in the bank of tank and all that. And we came down and we looked at each other and he says, that damn thing has to carry some kind of a, a record of who we are. Because it was the first spacecraft touted as leaving the solar system. So we sold him back at JPL on the idea. And what he, was really neat is they had told us at TRW that they'd had to take an instrument off. So there was five pounds of extra mass on the spacecraft that could be allocated for this. Wow. And I was thinking of, you know, like acrylic blocks and DNA and all, it, it got reduced to a plaque because NASA mm-hmm. headquarters, you know, couldn't think conventionally. <laughs> but well, <laughs> the, the idea of doing something where if anybody picks it up in a million years, they have the DNA, they have the cultural history, they have video, does your archive have video? It has video. It has photos. It also has DNA. Ah. Yeah. So we, we uh, did uh, put some Easter eggs in there. Um, there. There are still vaults that we haven't announced um, just because. Well, um, wait, 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 wait. There are. The, the first one that went on Barashid to the moon crashed, but mm-hmm. the disc is fine because it was not we a believe the disc. Event. We believe the disc is intact. Um, the disk contained, you know, all this knowledge. It also contained um, the DNA of 25 people um, that was in there and, uh, and quite a bit of other wonderful stuff. Well, didn't you tell me at one point that I'm on the moon tonight? Uh, well, your book is. That's your, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Photos. Yep, your work is up there. That's amazing. Um, that is yeah. so amazing. That is um, blankety blank. Yep. That's a, as, as Biden there. would say, that's an effing big deal. Your website's up there. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and you know, there's a, there's a massive, a massive archive of books and, and 60 seconds. Esoterica, esoterica. Okay. I'll tell you what, we have reached the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak and we're discussing archives that will last, that will outlast maybe humanity itself in our present iteration. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 
33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak, who is the um, father, founding father of an extraordinary enterprise. I love using that word. And he could use a little help. So if you want to kick in a few bucks to spread the content of our known and unknown history which, as you're going to hear in the third hour, could in fact include the confirmation of an extraordinarily interesting ancient archive from a predecessor civilization right here on Earth, where we have a latitude, a longitude, and some extraordinarily provocative data. You might want to help uh, with uh, Nova's Arc Mission Foundation and a project to keep humanity kind of at the forefront. So let me, let, me, let me go back to your dream because I'm really fascinated by the dream. Uh, you've now had several decades to kind of look back. It's, it's unlike other dreams. It doesn't fade. You can kind of almost recall it up through a random access memory and you see and you kind of experience the vividness of that experience, this time-compressed experience what is your take on the dream now compared to when you woke up all those decades ago as an eight-year-old kid going, wow? Yeah. Well, you know, as, as years have gone by, you know, it, bits and pieces of it have, have made more sense to me. And, you know, I see sort of events and trends and things that are happening in the world as, you know, potentially signs or, or I guess even um, sort of memories of, of where we might be heading. And you know, I hope not, but... Well, yeah. maybe I should be more pointed in the question. So let me, let me phrase it this way. Have you reached a conclusion as to whether it was a predictive dream? In other words, Nova Spivak growing up, doing this, going through the end of the world, fulfilling what you see in the dream, and then somehow through a hyperdimensional connection, seeing your descendants and what happens to the world long after you're gone? Or have you thought of it potentially in terms of it's a reincarnative dream of you in a previous epic when humanity was dumb and stupid and did the horrible thing that brought the end of the world at that point, and you're you're basically looking back at what we might do proactively to keep it from happening. Yeah, you know, I've I've actually had both of those um, speculations. Um, 
you know, I, is it the future or the past? Um, it, it doesn't seem to be completely made up because it has all this detail, scientific detail. I mean, really hard science and stuff that an eight-year-old didn't, mm-hmm. couldn't know. Um, it had a lot of detail and it was a very boring dream in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I gave you the short summary, but, you know, I lived, you know, for the rest of my life day by day in that dream. So, in, you in, know, in a very cold cave. Yeah. Underground. And well, first in a cylinder, right. And then in, in caves. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, glamorous. It, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't the Pharaoh or, you know, ISIS or something like that. I would, you know, a lot of people, when they have their reincarnation, their past life regressions, they're always famous. And it was really, you know, glorious. This wasn't like that. This was pretty, this was pretty uncomfortable and not glamorous. You know, it was, it was survival. Um, so, you know, um, I so don't know. was it I mean, future history, a la Isaac, mm-hmm. or maybe Robert Heinlein, or was it a reincarnative echo uh, because you in this life kill that foreknowledge is useful to maybe changing the arc of history? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I have thought, you know, it could be, you know, from a previous timeline or previous era on earth or somewhere else. Um, it could be that, you know, history repeats itself. I mean, I, I follow kind of forbidden archeology span and the idea that you know, Graham Hancock and others um, have a lot of evidence. And, and there's, there's quite a bit of other evidence as well um, that there may have been civilizations on earth, you know, millions of years ago that we've, that have been lost completely um, due to well, coal you, shifts you know, and other changes. You know, there's really a kind of a mainstream, <clears throat> they're kind of late to the party, but they're at least trying. There's a mainstream group, I forget who's, who's heading it, wrote the paper, whatever, called the Silurian Hypothesis, which is unabashedly named after a one episode or two of, uh, mm-hmm. of Star Trek Next Generation, mm-hmm. where an ancient uh, reptilian race from the Silurian is found by Picard and, and the Enterprise, mm-hmm. and they're trying to work out a kind of a modus vivendi so they can join us on the surface. And there is a group of, of scientists. Uh, I'm not sure of all their backgrounds or how much a generalist they are, so they're equipped to do this properly. But they're looking in Earth's geologic record for what they call techno-signatures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of someone or someones who may have come before. And frankly, I think their, their approach is incredibly naive and I think it's hopelessly doomed to failure because that's not how stuff will be made to survive. But what do you think? Well, the idea of looking for technosignatures in the geologic record is that kind of interesting. I mean, there could be certain atmospheric changes you could detect that might indicate, you know, a technological civilization had emerged. Um, or, for example, um, there are some places in India, in Rajasthan, that have um, obsidian glass uh, sands in the desert, um, similar to what you find after a nuclear explosion. Um, and there's actually radioactivity there they've detected. Oh, and it, really? It, mm-hmm. And it sort of coincides with these stories in the Vedas um, about uh, these ancient battles in the sky, 
between um, these different warring well, well, gods. If, 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 if there's if there's a radioactive you know data, mm-hmm. we should be able to date this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it could be done. They, they have detected some radioactivity there, and, and nobody's if, tried it. Nobody's actually. Said I don't know if they've checked. You know what the origin of that radioactivity is, um, but yeah, they should do that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it corresponds to a place where in these ancient stories from India, um, these Vimanas destroyed an entire city using these rays, these death rays that they could shoot from these, these Vimanas, which are these ancient flying machines that the, that the gods used. Um, and there was a battle in the sky in this area where the city was destroyed, and lo and behold, you know, there's all of this sort of obsidian glass in the desert um, and, you know, traces of radioactivity, you know, it could have been that um, a large meteor impacted um, the Earth and, you know, could have caused a blast. Um, or it could have been that there really was a battle in the skies. But, you know, there is that kind of interesting evidence. Um, there's lots of other really anomalous stuff, like little pieces of machined metal that have been found deep inside of, you know, rocks. Well, have, have you read the Thompson and Cremo what I call the 25-pound doorstop, which is this compendium. It's a huge book of all the ancient artifacts, the uparts, the out-of-place artifacts mm-hmm. that newspapers in the 18th and 19th century were copiously doing stories on. And then the Smithsonian mm-hmm. would go around and scarf up all the evidence and lock it away in that vault in the basement. And so <laughs> the heart I'm, – I'm serious. Yeah, no, I know. I, it, they actually found – I mean, there are articles – um, where they found um, Egyptian hieroglyphs, I believe in Utah. Um, they yep, found, yep. yep. Um, there's quite a bit of that actually. Who was the guy at Harvard? He was a marine biologist, but uh, Barry Barry Fell wrote a book called America BC, which shows clearly in the uh, you know hieroglyphs and epigraphy and and uh, the stuff on 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 walls that we are not the first. That there there was this right. incredible transit through the, the, the oceanic gyres of ancient Egypt to, you know, the continent of the United States. And there's all kinds of, of, of uh, archives. Do you know a guy named Scott Walter? No. He's a, he's a geologist who was kind of, it's his own cottage industry because he's been called in to use modern, you know, forensic uh, techniques and technologies to try to, you know, sort out facts from fiction. Kensington Runestone. Turns out it's real. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in New England. Turns out they're real. So we are not the first. And when we get to the third hour and I bring uh, uh, John on, and of course, Keith will also be adding some content. um, There appears to be in Utah, in southern Utah, that incredible canyon lands, literally buried archives from somebody with a paper trail in rock in stone showing where to find them with alignments and geometry and, you know, processional dating and all that. And somebody needs to fund expeditions to go and find who left us what a long, long time ago right here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that um, one of the, one of the interesting side effects of what we've been doing with ARC mission is we've been going through the process, the logical process thinking about how we would preserve archives and where we would preserve them. And it's led us to a lot of locations and technologies, but, but also locations um, that would be 
you know, good places to put them. And it, it occurred to us that uh, if these are good locations for archives, maybe there already are archives in these Bingo. places. And you want to put yeah. them in deserts, not in mm-hmm. Florida. <clears throat> right. Deserts are good. Deserts are good. Um, you know, lava tubes on the moon might be good. Um, there's lots of interesting places that might be good for archives. Um, we also started thinking about beacons because you want your archives to be findable. Um, you don't want them all to be findable, by the way. Part of well, our, you want them to be findable by a certain level of civilization, not right. the beer-drinking, gun-toting idiots who right. are running around with you know, uh, uh, right. free-wheel vehicles and right. ruin the deserts. You don't want those You people. want them to be found at the right time by, you know, by the intended audience that's capable of, of using them. Um, and understanding you know, what they and, found. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they find them too soon, um, you, they, they should at least be so special and magical that they, just, they preserve them and pass them down. And later, maybe somebody can take a closer look. Um, but, you know, one of the thoughts that we had was we might want to make big monuments like pyramids, things that are really hard to destroy um, and hard to pillage. Um, and um, Why know, not put just these... put the archives in the existing big monuments that already exist? Well, like yeah. Like at Giza, thought, yeah, like at, yeah, we, in India. We have. Right? Yeah. Okay, okay. We would like to do that, in fact. We would like to do that if they will let us. Um, we would like to do that. There are a lot of uh, bunkers and tunnels and caves around the world and salt mines and other places which we could also use. Um, you know, the more the better, because this is a numbers game. This is this is using strategies that nature uses. You know, massive redundancy. Redundancy, redundancy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, redundancy, redundancy. I like how you said that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't write for a living for nothing. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, as we started thinking about beacons, that was another piece of it. Is you know, there are many kinds of beacons. Um, one type of beacon is something that um, simply is in, is in history, is in culture, and gets passed down as a myth um, that people remember and you know, might point to something interesting that might be true sort of behind the myth. Um, so one of the things that we did was we created something that was a little bit of a scandal um, around some, tar- some tardigrades. Oh, the tardigrade scandal. Yeah. Wait, 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 um, wait, really, wait, 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 wait. You're admitting to me tonight on air that you created this fake myth? Well, I didn't say it was fake, although I didn't say it was real either. Um, but let's just... sounded so really bent out of shape over it. Well, uh, you, you say, deserve an Academy Award, Mr. Spivak. Well, let's just say that, um, you know, nobody really noticed the, well, back up the timing, and, and, the and April have no timing. Idea, for people who have no idea what we're talking about, start at the beginning. What was well, the Carter grade scandal? Allegedly, um, there were some tardigrades inside some of the epoxy in our disks that went to the moon. And tell um, people what tardigrades are. Tardigrades are a, a type of extremophile form of life that um, can withstand uh, radiation, can, can go into a sort of suspended animation state, and can be reanimated in the distant future. Um, they've been proved to proven to be able to uh, survive in space. They may even they may even be what brought life to Earth in the first place. Oh my God! Um, from comets that may have contained them from other worlds. Um, they 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 may be what we come from. 
Um, they really possible. look alien when you look. They at are them. alien creatures. But they're they little are teeny, very... tiny, like what a millimeter long. Yeah, probably? they're 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 or smaller. Yeah, they're they're small, and they you know they eat moss. Um, they they look like you know little sort of armored robot bear caterpillar type creatures. Um, you know they're very hardy and fairly. Well, isn't that one of their alternate uh, names, water, water bears? bears. Mm-hmm. Because they're basically they're like the ultimate life concentrate. You dry them out, you store them for a few million years, and then all you do to reanimate water. them, you add water. You add water, and they do they do need some sort of um, plant material to eat. Uh, but that's about it. Yeah. You mean, you mean when they come back to life? When they come back to life. Yeah. 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 But in, so, in their freeze dry condition, they're just they can, yeah. hanging. That's so hyper dimensional. Yeah, so we put some tardigrades into this because, or so, or so it's said that we put some tardigrades into this um, because still not it, admitting it. Okay. It was like a signature, right? A kind of like an artistic signature of life. Um, and you were so freaked out. Well, you know, here's the problem. So, what actually happened was that um, a friend of ours, a scientist who will never be named, gave us. <laughs> A tiny little piece of paper, about one square centimeter, um, which was said to contain tardigrades in the tune state, which is a suspended animation, embedded into the paper. Okay. Now, we thought, well, that's pretty cool. We should just take that tiny little piece of paper and seal it in epoxy and send it on the disc. The ultimate so, paper trail. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are some tardigrades, which is kind of artistic. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of cool. We might have come from tardigrades and tardigrades went to the moon with our knowledge. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we checked under a microscope and we were never actually able to verify that there were any tardigrades on that. Um, they were probably there, but, you know, we couldn't see them, but they were in the tune state and maybe they were just so dehydrated we couldn't really identify them. And we didn't make a very deep, deep study because this was kind of a last minute thing in the middle of the night before we sent this payload out. So let's just say it was an informal analysis of what was on that little piece of paper. But again, we're talking about one centimeter square little piece of paper that was allegedly containing tardigrades in, in the suspended animation state. So we stuck it into the epoxy and sent it on its merry way. Um, and we didn't tell anybody about it because, you know, it was just a little inside sort of Easter egg that, you know, wasn't a problem, didn't violate any rules or, you know, you can't contaminate the moon, by the way. It's not a protected location, number one. Number two, you know, these were in suspended animation, not alive technically, um, and well, in the pot- let me let me let me pause there because yeah you can't contaminate the moon because we already have well the, during the each Apollo of the Apollo yeah. missions the Apollo <laughs> 90, astronauts, 90 bags of poo yeah yeah I mean ba- an incredible number of plastic bags of astronaut shit yeah it's which there. have all kinds of creepy crawlies living and growing well there's in- quite a bit of DNA preserved on the moon but it's been irradiated it yeah. wasn't tardigrades tardigrades are different because. Um, you know, they can withstand radiation. They can actually heal from radiation. They're, they have something that protects them from radiation. They're hyperdimensional. Well, they're interesting. They're, they're sort of perfectly designed to spread life. He keeps ignoring that term, folks. Why well, do I like keep that ignoring? term. Because it's, it's a real physical term. Okay. Life is not a three-dimensional construct. It's higher dimensional beamed into our 3D reality when appropriate bandwidth and conduits between dimensions are available. Okay. Well, that, 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 that certainly sounds plausible to me. Well, there's um, laboratory case, data, a ton of laboratory data, which back going all the way back to the bad old days of the Soviet Union and a, and a Russian, a genius named Nikolai Kozirev. Hmm. 
I will provide you background material after the show. Okay. Well, anyway, as it, as it happened, um, you know, these, this tiny little alleged tardigrade postage stamp in the epoxy in the this alleged part. sealing, you know, protected by nickel and epoxy and, you know, basically radiation proof, um, in, you know, sealed in artificial amber, along with the DNA of 25 people and lots of, and, 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 and the DNA of a whole bunch of saints and other interesting things from holy places around the world. It kind of made a little spiritual time capsule in the center of this thing. And my book um, and my website. Oh, yeah, that's there. And, and by the way, um, <laughs> a vast treasure trove of, of, of other books is up there. 30,000 books. Um, there's a lot of stuff which we curated to be duplicated so. on the future mission so that we know where we can set up the monument and yeah. have the tourists all lining up when uh, Artemis gets going to mm-hmm. go and see this. So there is a lot of, a lot of wonderful stuff up there, but anyway, um, the, you know, I, we kept it a secret because first of all, we didn't want to distract from the mission, but then the mission crashed and, you know, we let time go by and quite a bit of time went by and eventually in an, in the month of April, I uh, leaked it out, which I probably shouldn't have done on hindsight. Um, and oh, it, it caused a firestorm. There were it caused a firestorm in the yeah, Washington Post. There were every, every Wall Street Journal, probably every CNN. media outlet in the oh, world. Oh my God! Yeah. And you and you kept talking to me and saying, "Oh, it's going to destroy our credibility." And I'm thinking, yeah. No well, way. I mean, we were accused of contaminating the moon, and of course, because it was. The Israelis, it was, you know, a lot of anti-Semitism, too, about the Jews you know, contaminating that, that, the moon. That definitely came out. There was a lot of stuff that happened, and it, it really just kind of blew up into this. It just went, well, you know, you the know media. Well, you know that just, sheet was sabotaged, right? Well, I, I don't know that it was sabotaged, but it, it, the crashes was strange. And, and, and in our previous shows, we talked about that. There were a lot of strange anomalies about where it, where it happened and how it happened. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Well, there it got a, lot a computer of... command to turn itself upside down and fire the rocket into the moon. Come yeah. on. Well. And the same you know, thing happened to the Indians, remember? Yeah. I mean, there could have been, as we've talked about before, some kind of material or something that also may have impacted. We don't know. I mean, you know, it's possible, as I think you've said in the past, that there could be some kind of um, dome or some type of, very, I watched very, like, the Indian spacecraft bounce off the damn layers of the dome on the way mm-hmm. down. Yep. You can literally just run the video and see them bouncing off the glass mm-hmm. in terms of their trajectory, you know, because that thing was not supposed to do that. Yeah, well, and what's that type of material is extremely lightweight um, that's been developed that, you know, you can make. You can make material out of it's extremely, extremely lightweight. I'm trying to remember the Well, term, are, we, but... are we talking buckyballs? No, no, it's are it's, we it's, are we talking silica foam? Something like that. It's almost not there and you can hit right. it on one side mm-hmm. with a blowtorch yeah. and hold That's it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, That's and it, it, they're using it for, for heat shields. Are you for talking about air gel? Air, air gel. gel. Air gel. Air gel. And look, there is a lot of silica on the moon. Right? Yeah. I mean it could it could be that there's a kind of aerogel type of dome. There's Maybe. a lot of glass. Half the mass yeah. of the samples from Apollo is glass. Of certain places, certainly. Uh, so anyway, and as, and as we know, there's photos that show what appear to be broken dome-type material. Okay, I'm now, you want to know the rest of the story? Sure. In the next few weeks, two weeks, 
we may know, the whole world may know, that Hogan's crackpot model with their ancient artifacts made of glass all over the moon will be tested by three separate missions going to the moon, not counting Musk, who's coming up fast on the inside with his starship and his tourists. The first mission to arrive will arrive the night of the 13th. It's called Capstone. Don't you like that name? Yeah, very interesting. It, <laughs> yes, it is a it is a uh, it is a contract, thirty million dollar contract to a little company north of me here in New Mexico, up in Colorado, uh, called Advanced Space Systems, and it's supposed to go into a retrograde halo lunar orbit that will kind of be a pathfinder for the ultimate gateway lunar space station required in a couple of years to support the Artemis NASA program to return to the moon. The next mission to go into orbit around the moon for 25 days now is going to be the Artemis 1 unmanned launch of the whole stack, the SLS rocket, the Orion spacecraft, the European service module that will kind of test out and test the limits of the Artemis technology to go into lunar orbit into this, uh, basically it's going to be a uh, uh, equatorial orbit, and it will it will not go into any unusual places around the moon yet. They'll just basically duplicate the trajectory on a much larger scale of Apollo and then come back to Earth after 25 days. They are launching literally seven minutes into our Sunday night show, 7, 12.07 a.m. East Coast time on the morning of the 14th evening of the 13th here in the land of enchantment so we're going to try to go to the launch live the third mission which gets there in the middle of december is the south korean mission called denuri which is a kind of a smashing together of two korean words which means enjoy moon they have a wonderful sense of humor in south korea and they will go into a low altitude lunar orbit 60 uh, miles up They'll spend several years. They have a <clears throat> camera from NASA, 33-pound camera, which is 800 times more sensitive than any space camera ever flown. It's called Shadow Cam. Their idea is to look into the shadows at the north and south poles where the volatiles are, where the Artemis lunar base will be built someday, according to the plan. And they're going to look and try to map the topography and the volatiles using only the reflected light of the sunlit peaks of the crater rims into the depths of the forever shadowed craters that don't even see earth light. And I think that's a wonderful cover story for the fact that this mission is designed to photograph the domes with 800 times more sensitivity because you can't land on the moon unless you, unlike the Indians, know where the holes are and go down through the holes to safely land. All of that between now and the end of the year, and they all carry among them over two dozen state-of-the-art, high-end digital color video systems, and one of these has got to capture the artifacts in a way that they will no longer be able to be denied. Wow. Well, I, I hope that I hope that. That happens now. I hope they also hope somebody also will image the uh, Bereshit crash site at higher resolution um, so that we can see uh, what might have survived of our time capsule. 
That'd be good. Well, LRO should probably have done it already. LRO did, but LRO is a, is what about a meter? I think it's a meter per pixel, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you know, a DVD is quite a bit smaller than a meter. So you know, we want to we want to see whether or not there's any debris. If there's any debris or any wreckage at all, then very likely we survived. Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak. He is kind of like the founding father of solar system space time capsules following the tradition of me and Carl and Eric Burgess. And he's doing a hell of a job. Hell of a job, Brown. He wasn't the president who said that. So we're going to be getting kind of winding up to some really extraordinary new stuff that I'm hoping will match his stuff. And we have 90 minutes left to do all that. We're going to be joined at the top of the hour by uh, Andrew Curry who's got some new art, and John Womack, and he's going to tell uh, the audience and uh, Nova about this incredible potential for ancient high-tech time capsules in the stunning red canyon lands of New Mexico, along with our own Keith Morgan, who took pictures and will obviously uh, contribute his, uh, his background archive to the conversation. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight on this Saturday night, grading uh, the next half hour into Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak, and we're talking about time capsules. How do you preserve all human knowledge? And we're going to kind of grade into in the next 90 minutes or so the conversation. Are we the first who has kind of attempted this, or is there in fact someone else or someone else's who came before who done the same thing and in fact are we their direct descendants 
Novo, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm here. Um, and glad to be here. It's a fun conversation tonight. Well, to me, it's incredibly timely because, pun intended, NASA went out about three weeks ago and did something that either was extraordinarily brilliant and multi-leveled or extraordinarily stupid. And what I'm going to do before we're joined uh, at the top of the hour by Andrew and John, I'll kind of give the background and and uh, we'll we'll wait to go uh, when they join us to go through some of the imagery. But um, back in 1996, some astronomers found in the extraordinary number of asteroids, I think like a million plus now have been charted in terms of orbits and missed distances. And they're the main belt asteroids that we don't worry about. There's the uh, Apollo asteroids that cross Earth's orbit, and then the Amor asteroids that come close but don't cross Earth's orbit now but could. And these latter two categories are called NEOs, near-Earth asteroids. And if one big enough, and the size that would really make for a very bad hair day is on the order of a few hundred feet, five, six hundred feet. If they were to land uh, near a major city, it'd be like, you know, setting off a you know, megaton, multi-megaton hydrogen bomb, and it's goodbye city and millions of people. Um, on a bigger scale, up to a few miles across, uh, then you have what we call the dinosaur killers. That was uh, Walter Alvarez and his son, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Louis Alvarez and his son Walter, who back in the 90s figured out that the dinosaurs basically were done in by some major impacts, one or two, and they've now found uh, one of the big craters, a place called Chicxulub, uh, offshore of the Yucatan. Uh, because of uh, continental drift, it moved. Um, and when it hit, it apparently raised so much havoc in the environment with tsunamis and dust and global forest fires and all that, that basically a huge number of species uh, bit the dust and allowed mammals, according to the story, to evolve and ultimately become us. There is another model for this, of course, which is that none of this was accidental. And in fact, it was an effort to destroy uh, fledgling civilizations on Earth by bad guys. And it was 66 million years ago. And there was a very flourishing, extraordinarily uh, wide uh, spread, ancient, incredibly high-tech civilization with uh, habitats and evidence all over the solar system, including on the moon. And we now think, of course, as ourselves as the only consciousness in the solar system, but we could be, pro, you know, descendants of something extraordinarily grand that either we just don't know about or some people do, and they've kept the knowledge of this from all the rest of us up until it's no longer possible to keep this knowledge under wraps because we're moving at light speed from the era of governmental space efforts to democratization on an extraordinary scale, um, like efforts of NOVA and efforts of uh, rocket labs and efforts of Musk and all that. So at some point, if all this stuff that we've been proposing is out there, it's going to be found and tripped over and video will be sent home and there'll be eyewitness testimony. And at that point, it will be Katie bar the door because everything on earth changes. What I find interesting is that it's all happening 
now. And we are at the edge of the runway of this either taking off in an incredible, dramatic, and confirmable fashion, or all this data coming back will prove that we've been crazy all along and no one should listen to us anymore. I mean, literally, in the next two or three months, between now and the end of the year, depending upon the censoring systems, it could well be that humankind will realize that A, it's not alone, B, there's a lot of folks out there, but most important, we are their descendants, at least some of them, and we have an extraordinary history up to and including ancient archives of video, sound, music, art, culture, science, stunning engineering, ways to get off fossil fuels that would make any, any environmentalist swoon, all of it is waiting to be confirmed. And during the final mission to the moon, Apollo 17, according to over a dozen images that I have quietly acquired from the Apollo archives and put together and posted on uh, Enterprise and here at the other side of midnight, standing on the edge of Shorty Crater and looking down into it as the two astronauts were when they drove their moon buggy right up to the rim, there appears to be in the bottom of the crater an incredibly anthropomorphic robotic head that I called initially Davis head, but in fact, it looks much more like C-3PO. And I've always wondered if those guys went down in that crater under 16G, picked it up, brought it home, and NASA secretly and quietly has spent the last 50 years figuring out how to talk to it. Because the next step up, Nova, from your passive archive is an AI interactive intelligence, particularly in space, which can basically be part of a galactic library, which will be able to interact. And all it requires is for it to be turned on with an appropriate power source, which brings us back to your idea of beacons. The main problem with beacons is the power source. How do you design a beacon that will last millions of years? Yes. Well, um, okay, now we're getting into some very interesting territory. Um, so one type of beacon is a cultural beacon. For example, a fable or a myth that gets passed down, like the Tardigrades, which point to there's something interesting you know, in this place. Maybe we should check it out. Um, another type of beacon is physical, uh, something physical that's not powered or it's passively powered, like a reflector. Um, that is positioned in the right place and behaves in a way that isn't that, that indicates artificiality. Yeah, they are uh, they are called corner cube reflectors, and they're used in radar and they're used with lasers. And you send a beam to them, and they're geometrically arranged so the beam turns exactly around and comes back to where the source of the beam originates, and they're not natural. Well, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to make, for example. We, we've had a lot of thoughts about this at the ARC mission. So, for example, something that rotates such that it reflects, you know, in a way that might be, say, the prime number sequence or, you know, it flickers something back to you, um, like Morse code, essentially. So making something that, you know, you could see with a telescope 
So wait, um, we're, we're talking about like a big disc or a big ball, and there's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a barcode stripes around the well, it could be a, Well, it could be a, I mean, it could be a, it could be a geometric construction made out of mylar that okay. um, on wrapped on a polygon with just the right shape so that as it rotates, the light from the sun reflects back to Earth such that you could see it flicker, but the, the rate of the flickering is some kind of code. Yeah, it would be an, you know, a non-natural type of flickering with some mathematical structure in mm. it. Um, so that, you know, one way would be to put these kinds of beacons up into well into we had our... one of these come through the solar system well it was called it was called a muamua that's possible and, and, yeah and, and except for me and abby Loeb, nobody else thinks the damn <laughs> thing was interesting well the fact that it increased in velocity as it left was certainly interesting well that goes back to the hyperdimensional physics i'm going to background you on mm-hmm. when we get off the air because i so can I'm... explain exactly what happened but abby Loeb will not talk to me which I mm-hmm. find very peculiar. Interesting. Uh, well, objects like this um, could be another example. Another, another um, example, there's been some research done on, you know, what would, if, if a civiliza- an advanced civilization could really do even planetary scale or solar system scale engineering, what, you know, could they make a beacon where, for example, they might have, you know, planets, they might alter their orbits or, you know, do things where you could actually see flicker or you know unnatural well, wait, 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 planetary wait, dynamics from a great ex- distance we're talking extrasolar system signatures right yeah that's possible well Technic we have signatures. we have one right in our lexicon and Webb's going to study the hell out of it you know what it's called which one the trappist one system mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are seven tetrahedral earth-sized planets all orbiting an M-type main star, and if you show me a way that can happen naturally, I will show you a galactic civilization that can move worlds around and create a theme park that is literally 39 twice 19.5 light years from the Earth and is aligned so that you see the planets, but only from this solar system. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and after they made a great fuss about announcing that Trappist-1 was going to be their first target as part of the year one science at Webb, it's gone completely dark. Mm. There's no data on any observations of the Trappist-1 system from Have, they done, have they done any? Have yes. they done it? Yes, they started mm. the first week. Mm. At least it was on the calendar, but mm. nobody's talking. That's interesting. Well, yeah. So looking for those types of, you know, distant beacons, um, you know, I've thought about lots of different ways to do it. You could make something which um, blocks the sunlight. So you, you could put large enough objects, even just large, very thin, but large objects that um, orbit a sun, um, but um, cause it to, you know, flicker or block light in a particular plane. Um, essentially sending a coded message, you know, to great distances uh, in the universe. It's also interesting that, you know, we've seen, there seem to be what I call these kind of interstellar cricket choruses of planets (laughs) that are flickering together. Yes. 
Um, they sort of flicker in a similar way. It's a strange phenomenon they've noticed. Um, they don't know what it is, but it could be that, you know, there's a kind of cricket chorus. And when you reach a certain level, you join the chorus by you know, causing your solar system to flicker with the rest of the cricket. Now, when you say flicker, are you talking optical light or, or radio um, wave transmissions? Uh, I believe that it's optical, but I don't remember um, exactly what the measurement was. But they found that there, is a, that there are these stars that pulse in a strange way and, and that there are sort of collections of them in different galaxies even. Well, you know that there's a guy named Dr. Paul LaViolette who's written several books on the subject. He thinks, going back to Jocelyn Bell's original discovery of pulsars, that mm-hmm. pulsars are artificial super civilization galactic navigation beacons right. with sort information of... superposed on what looks to be random. Because the mainstream models, frankly, just break down. Mm-hmm. They, they work up to a certain harm-waving point, you know, like Tommy Gold, who said they were neutron stars spinning, and they have this kind of lighthouse, you know, beam that wafts across us every time this thing spins. But they're so much more complex now. And as far as I know, no one has actually tried to look with a supercomputer to see if any of the pulses, irregularly regular in some of them, actually have a code. Right. I mean, there, there, it could be interesting to analyze that, maybe some kind of sort of GPS system there. Well, it could be done by citizen scientists because that mm-hmm. kind of computer technology is now almost available, you know, through Apple. Almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there are these types of things we could be looking for across, across solar systems or galaxies, looking for correlations and other things that might indicate well, then, there, sort of interstellar. Then, 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 then there is Tabby Star. Remember Tabby Star? Remind me. Oh, Tabby Star was found in the Kepler data by a bunch of citizen scientists. And it's named Tabby because of a scientist at Yale. She's now in uh, the University of Louisiana, I think, named Tabitha. I forget her last name. Anyway, she organized these citizen scientists. They combed through all this data, and they found this extraordinary F-type star that's, I forget how far away it is. It's, it's not far away. It's like within uh, 100, 200 light years. And it's got this extraordinary set of eclipses, like something huge is orbiting. And the orbits and the eclipses appear to be some kind of code that's mm-hmm. been dismissed by the mainstream as just dust. But the star is much too old to have any dust around it. And it's it's amenable to a much better job with Webb, and it's on the list. And again, nobody at Webb will talk about looking at Tabby Star, which well, appeared probably to get be, around to it. Which appeared to be kind of like a yeah. But see, the calendar is already there. They're already supposed mm-hmm. to be doing it. They're just not admitting they're doing it now. Oh, and by the way, um, I, I did while we were talking. I looked this up. There, it was about the, the thing I was referring to was a two two hundred and thirty four different stars that seem to be uh, sort of pulsing to, uh, in a, at the same rate. Um, and it's a, stra- it's a strange thing. How are these 234 and, stars pulsing at the same rate? And these are widely scattered. Yeah, they're widely scattered. But they're like fireflies. Mm-hmm. Like fireflies or crickets. I like, I like fireflies. They used to fireflies, fireflies is nice. Yeah, fireflies yeah. is good. 
Um, so yeah, it could be that when you reach a certain level, you, you kind of start to flicker. Well, or you flicker, you. or you deliberately set up a beacon so someone knows you're in the club. Well, the same idea, right? So that you know, you you join the the chorus, if you will, so they see you. Um, anyway, beacons are are interesting. So with time capsules, well, these are um, passive beacons that require mm-hmm. only inertia like you spin it you have a code mm-hmm. printed on the surface right. so okay or big reflectors in some kind mm-hmm. of or things that block light um selectively there's lots of ways you could make things which could be noticed optically or with other uh, parts of the spectrum but they would be passive passive because you know unless you're unless you have a power source that can last long enough um passive Works pretty well. Well, that goes um, now, back course, to hyperdimensional physics. Yes, that right. is possible. Well, if you, yeah, I mean, it, there are technologies that may exist. I mean, certainly you could harness the sun and just use solar power to do it. The problem is that the electronics um, that we presently have just don't, they're not very durable in space. So we might be able to, you know, make a plutonium powered power source, but the electronics won't last very long. So the, the problem we have right now is. We don't really have a way to make computers or circuits that you know, will, can, will, will run for millions of years, even if the power source could. Well, when you say we don't, I believe the deep state folks do, the black ops people, just the rest of us are supposed to think this is impossible. That gets back to the hyperdimensional physics model and a certain technology you and I were discussing some years ago. Remember that? Well, yes, I do. Well, yeah, there's, look- there's a flip side to it. It not only is a space drive, it also produces unlimited electricity forever. There are theoretically uh, you know, power sources that could do that, like zero-point energy, for example. Um, the problem, though, at this point is the, you know, the, the rest of the infrastructure around it isn't very durable. So, yes, I mean, we might be able to produce this energy and tap it on a short time scale, but if we wanted to make you know, let's say a, a time capsule that could last for a billion years um, that, was, that had an active power source. That's where we run into some challenges because we don't know how to do that. At least, at least the non-black ops part of the world, we don't know I'm, how to I'm, do I'm, that. I'm glad you qualified that because, yes, they do. And that's part of the reason for all this nonsense about UFOs. We're not supposed to know how old we are and all that because the ultimate secret, once you open this gate between dimensions – not only do you have technologies that will run forever because they're non-entropic, you also have the keys to consciousness and who and what we really are, and that's the ultimate no-no. We're never supposed to know that. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and that gets to you know, what you were saying about you know, the C-3PO head and the, the idea of an interactive time capsule. We've thought about that too. You know, could we have an AI... Um, you know, I think if you go down that path, it, it ultimately leads to the Carl Sagan idea of, you know, a virtual reality, have a world in which you can interact with, with these other intelligences, as in contact, the movie contact. Um, you know, ultimately, probably the most efficient way to do this would just to be to beam, you know, the plans, the specs for building the machine, the computer and the software to run the simulation in which you could then interact with the aliens and, and you know, I think um, that access was, their knowledge. I think that idea germinated in the mind of a brilliant guy named Sir Fred Hoyle, whose 
colleague and uh, um, grad student, and now you know uh, he carries on his work. Uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh uh, from England has been a uh, guest on the show many, many times. Fred Hoyle wrote two incredible sci-fi novels. You know who Fred Hoyle was, right? Mm-hmm. He basically was a giant in the 50s and figured out how to create, you know, fusion reactors with stars and the, the, the proton-proton cycle and the beta chains and all that. He was into nuclear astrophysics. He wrote two books, one called The Black Cloud, which was about an interstellar conscious cloud that was approaching the solar system. And the other had to do with an AI intelligence in the galaxy of Andromeda, M31, that could not send itself, but sent instructions on how to build a device to duplicate itself here. I think that's kind of like what you're referring to. Yeah. Um, to a device that could either, you know, duplicate um, a sort of AI holodeck in which you could interact with, you know, the, the, the representatives, if you will, of this alien species right. and, their, and their knowledge base. Um, or, you know, if you want to get more advanced, maybe the device you're building is some kind of communication device. But which means it ta- would have to operate outside of three dimensions. Right. Speed of light limitations be, and all that. Right. But short of that, a time capsule, you know, would have to send a program, right, um, that, that, with the instructions for, for running it, um, in which you could then interact. You know, it would learn to communicate with you, whoever you are. Um, and so we've thought about that. We've, we've thought about projects like that. But we always come up against, well, yes, you could beam, if you do it as light, you beam it as data, sure. We could send the data out in all directions and hope somebody receives it and builds the machine, you know, and then runs the program. That, that's a great way to do it. And it might be that, you know, somebody's sending that to us. We haven't noticed it yet. Um, but if you're trying to do it in a physical object, the challenge is, you know, again, you know, creating the electronics, creating a computer that could survive in space um, and, and actually operate you know, millions of years from now. And, and currently, at least what we publicly know of, you know, would pretty much be shredded by the harsh environment of space. Well, yeah, basically it would be, uh, it would be a Musk's uh, roadster on a, on a galactic scale. It wouldn't survive right. you know, worth a damn. Right. So but hyperdimensional right technologies here. will. So, um, so where are you with some of these uh, outliers of the idea of sending you know, libraries to the moon. Uh, well, I mean, we are, we we are sending libraries to the moon, and we're, we'll continue doing it, as well as other locations. But you're talking about, can. you know, Mark two, Mark three, Mark five beacons that will catch your attention, that will respond. You know, corner cubes or stuff like that. Well, we do want to we do want to send beacons. I mean, what I'd like to be able to do if 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 we if we come up with the funding one way or another, is we we would like to send missions to Lagrange points and put beacons in those locations, beacons that you can see um, from Earth optically and or in other ways that reflect, um, that are passive, but reflect, um, you know, interesting patterns back that attract attention. So, um, you know, we'd like to, we'd like to send objects which you can see optically from Earth with a telescope. and potentially from outside our solar system as well, if you have a powerful enough telescope. Um, and those objects would contain the archives. So we, we would like to do that. 
Um, of course, they're really hard to reach, which is a challenge if you want your archives to be recovered. Um, and so ultimately, um, if, we, if we were really clever, we would encode in, these, in a set of beacons around the solar system the coded map of the locations of the ones on Earth. Mm. Which is a lot easier to reach at the moment. Correct. And if you happen to be stuck on Earth, uh, you know, if you were confined to an earlier stage of technology, but you could see, you know, you could see these things around the solar system and interpret the, the coded flashes of their reflections of the sunlight um, to be basically drawing a simple map or longitude and latitude map of locations um, where there's interesting things to find. Maybe that would be an in a cool way of communicating that over you know, millions of years into the future. Hmm. Uh, YouTube, of course, has tons and tons of stuff on it. Most of it is noise. But occasionally there are signals in the noise. And there was a video that came out of India a few weeks ago making the rounds. Uh, there was some big giant rock, which there was an earthquake, and a portion of the rock split open. A door fell off, and there's a whole carefully uh, hollowed out room like an archive, like a repository inside this giant, giant, you hmm. know, mountain-sized boulder. Uh, if, if I find the reference. I'd love to see that video. Yeah, I, I, well, the guy's very good at explaining it. But what's really interesting is that the beveling on the door, and no one apparently has noticed this, I guess, except me, is identical to the beveling on the upper plateau at Tawanico between Peru and Bolivia. Mm, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, we have to see that. I'd like to see that. Um, you should send that link after the show. Um, I'm making a list. You know, another good place to store a time capsule that we've investigated um, or an archive is actually in DNA. Um, and we've done that. We've actually written the Wikipedia into synthetic DNA, uh, the whole Wikipedia into synthetic DNA. Um, and we are sending that actually to the moon uh, it's just another storage media in, 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 a, in our next mission, um, along with DNA of a lot of other species. But um, that's really, that's synthetic DNA and then, of course, the DNA of species. But what gets more interesting is the idea that it might be possible to store information into the DNA of a, of a real living species that can reproduce and and transmit that dna oh that would be uh, almost immortal right if well you, if you could somehow guard against mutations and well exactly that's the challenge because uh, natural Taylor, selection, we are at, we are at the top of the hour so uh, why don't we hold this for when our other guys join us you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland my guest this morning is nova spivak we're talking time capsules ours and theirs and we'll get back to it because we're going to be joined by Andrew Curry and John Womack. And John is going to tell us about something that could be a combination of ours and theirs, depending upon how you define theirs. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this now Saturday night, Sunday morning. Here we are in the land of enchantment beyond the the witching hour. I wonder why midnight was chosen as the witching hour. I remember that great song, Season of the Witch. Anyway, we're being joined by uh, Andrew Curry, who is our resident uh, artist, uh, Hollywood commercial raconteur. He just uh, finished a very interesting job for the mouse, uh, celebrating their 100th birthday and uh, being someone who has more than a passing familiarity with mice. That's a long story. Uh, That kind of intrigued me. Andrew, are you with us? Yes, I am. Excellent. Andrew, meet Nova. Nova, meet Andrew Curry. Hi, Nova. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. And do we have John Womack with us? I believe we do. Oh, we have John. Uh, John's claim to fame, Nova, is that among other things, he's been going out of body since he was about the age of your eight-old dream and seeing all kinds of very interesting things. And I think I'd like to start off this uh, uh, next hour, the last hour of the Saturday Night Show, by asking you, John, what do you think of John's dream and what is your interpretation? You mean, do you mean I, of I, my I, dream? I, Nova's dream. Nova's dream. Sorry. Sorry. Well, yes, I, I thought that was uh, an exquisite description of a lucid dream. And at a young age, you know, kids forget that we're not supposed to think this way. You know, like you said, Nova, you didn't know it age eight, it was nothing out of the normal. It just was thing that you did and you accepted that. And, you know, kids still remember what it's like on the other side as when they're kids. And then by the age of seven, you start to forget. That's what they say. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a very cool lucid dream. And I wondered if you were having memories of a past life that took place in the, you know, in the future, perhaps your next life you've already lived and, and you, now you've come back before that life because they, they bounce you around in this, you know, the reincarnation model. It's, it's not a linear thing. You, you get bounced around. So 
I don't know. I just had a lot of interesting thoughts when I listened to it. It was very cool. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I've had similar thoughts like that as well. Yeah. Well, as my grandmother used to say, time is God's way of keeping everything from happening at once. So if you are really living, I mean, that's a really interesting idea that you're out of time sequence, out of sync, and it's a distant future memory, not even in, in, in this lifetime. Yeah, it's possible. Um you know, it's possible that we we remember things from the future as well as the past. Why not? Hmm. Life gets very complicated if that's true. Huh. Okay, so um <laughs> the reason I invited John and Andrew is because John is tripped over something so extraordinary. And John, you're working on a video with Maria on this, right? No, the video with Maria is a full-length digital film. It's on Stonehenge. Oh, oh, oh I, I, I obviously misconstrued. Do you have anything on video about uh, Utah other than the show we did? Oh, I have a lot. And in fact, <clears throat> I've uh, used Google Earth to animate the locations of, um, you know, over a dozen of these landmarks in Arches Park. And yeah, there, if you can trust Google Earth um, and the 3D animation, there are entrances in these structures that you could climb to and enter and be inside these, you know, great cathedral temple type um, monuments. Okay, well, let's, let's do this, given that Nova is in a unique position to appreciate what it is that you and I and Keith and some others think might be going on there. Uh, you and Keith together kind of give us a thumbnail sketch, five, ten minutes of what you think is in Utah and why we should take it seriously. Keith, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, what I found when I went on vacation to visit my son was we went down to the Arches Park and I wanted to see that arch that they always talk about. But we went to other sections and I'm looking at things that just stood out that just didn't look like they were natural. I'm seeing statues standing back to back. I'm seeing sculptures, 3D sculptures released in the walls with figures and I saw this one bus on top of this butte, and it looked like a bus in Nefertiti with the headdress and everything. And I was like, that's weird. And next to it was a pedestal that had corners and edges and, it, and a little stem sticking out of it like it had a head or something on it. And I took a picture, a wide shot with my wife in the picture. And then later, when I was going through these pictures, uh, setting up for a show... I noticed that there was this vertical column standing on top of its own little pedestal down below the, the bus of Nefertiti, and it kind of looked like the balanced rock that everybody was talking about. To me, it looks like a fish head entity sculpture. And then I showed it to Jonathan, and Jonathan sees to the right of it, etched into the wall, 
a bird's head with the beak, the eye, and I was like blown away. How do you get four out-of-place artifacts in one photograph that I didn't notice the two of them in the last time that I saw them? And it, it can't be just natural. That just does not happen. And since Jonathan you know, corroborated by finding that fourth object, that's when I said, okay, these things are not natural. And everywhere I looked, even that the arch sitting up on top of the mesa, the, the famous arch, it's sitting up on a tall mesa with all these other dome structures. And I'm going, that is not natural. So from there, I've been going over my other pictures and I've been finding one thing after the other just doesn't fit the picture. They just don't fit the picture. And I'm pretty sure that you can't have that much stuff in one area and it all be natural formations. And I noticed that when people went into the Utah area where the monolith, Utah monolith was, and nobody noticed the... No, are are you familiar with the so-called Utah monolith? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the pictures were coming out of there, and nobody noticed the giant puma head sticking out the wall on the left side of that thing. And then I saw on the right side, there was something with this perfect S-curve. There were these holes, and I couldn't make out what it was until one of the guys from the park services took a picture looking down from on top into the valley where the, the monolith was. And then I could see that that section on the right side was a huge freaking cat head and I was blown away and I'm like people came into this area and they looked but they couldn't see and then I saw the other picture a little sculpture of an owl sitting up on a little shelf paintings on the walls of various things and a picture of a lady and and I'm like how do you get all of these things in this one area like this and nobody sees what they're looking at, uh, I, it just blew it blew my mind. This is all artwork. Somebody put that monolith there because they wanted us to look. And everybody piled in there, and they just gawked at this silvery-shaped pillar and left and never saw all the rest of the signs. And that's what drove me crazy. <laughs> okay, John, um, think of yourself. You're on the ground floor. You enter an elevator, you've got 30 or 40 floors above you to go to the top of the executive suite, and the guy standing next to the buttons is Steven Spielberg. Give Nova the elevator pitch of how you brought mathematics and geometry and archaeoastronomy to this qualitative, there's something weird going on in Utah, and you've got reproducible data that says we could be dealing with the most extraordinary collection of time capsules ever imagined. Go. Yes, this is a time capsule on a global scale. And perhaps the the most vast segment of it is the American West. Although there are other parts of the world that have this too. But not like here in the West, we have all the arches and that what that's what separates it from uh, these other places that may have a few arches, but uh, not 2,500. 
So I think that my working model is that this is a time capsule left behind by these Anu Martians or the Martianaki. I don't know what you want to call them. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. Okay. Yeah, this is, um, oh my God, this is such a jubilant, glorious event. Perhaps the most glorious event in human history is, is being depicted here. They have left us um, depictions of their home. And I mean, it's just all over from Monument, Monument Valley and Grand Canyon and uh, Canyon Lands, of course, and it just stretches on and on. It's it's pretty it's pretty mind-boggling just to see what's in Arches Park. So I've been using Google Earth and then um, YouTube videos of people on vacation and so on uh, to find these solar, these celestial alignments. Um, recognize the various races that are being represented here. Lots of animals, of course. You know, the Martians love animals. And these, these this stuff is all over Mars, too, as you know, Richard. Um, so I've also come upon a number of entrances that are visible on Google Earth because I believe that inside these structures, there are our treasures awaiting us to find them and decode the arches. And once we do, we, we step through and we meet these folks or, or they come to us or something like that. We ring a bell or it's that kind of thing. Not bad for an elevator pitch. Uh, Nova, <laughs> um, you might want to ask him how he thinks he's got real stuff here. Because the methodology I find really interesting. Well, I'd, you know, I'd probably want to see some of the images that, that go with the narrative. Um, the, of course, the other sort of mainstream explanation for a lot of this is just geological erosion. Um, so, you know, I think part of it would be what have you found that can't be explained by that? Or secondly, um, you know, what are some of the depictions or, or objects that, you know, are particularly interesting? I'd want to see the pictures. Yeah, sure. I can send you a link to um, a couple of weeks ago, Richard had me on so I could present my evidence mm -hmm. and all those pictures are still there. And oh, so, so I can, yeah, I can send you that link. Oh. I, I laid it out as best I could. Um, they, they love, the solar alignments and they love for example one of the things that led me to the entrances the uh, and the evidence uh, from a couple of weeks ago is just on the park avenue segment of the park mm -hmm. just that one area which is you know like i said i could you know i could do a two semester course just on mm -hmm. this area here well is it, and, talk to me about the the so-called peepholes or windows yeah. cut in solid yeah. rock nova so if you stand behind them your view is geometrically constrained to look across a canyon and on the opposite wall there's this whole freeze of official sculpted like stuff mm -hmm. interesting yeah, yeah I'm looking, I'm, while you're talking i'm looking at some of the stuff that 
that, I, that you put up here. Oh, cool. Yeah, because it, it ends up, you know, I was looking for this sort of map key that decodes this mural. And it was cool. I finally found it. And it's, you know, they put these entrances and these little decoding keys like you got when you were a kid or something. It reminds me of that. Or it's very Indiana Jones and Tomb Raider. And, you know, it's all of that. Um, so yeah, indeed, it does highlight the, uh, the Queen Hera type figure, the Anunnaki mother of the human race, I guess. I don't know much about the Anunnaki, but I can tell you that's probably who, uh, this is. And there's a few other races depicted. And like I was saying with these entrances, one of the things that led me to them was the shadow art. And I've come to recognize that after, I mean, if you spend, uh, it's like looking at Mars, you know, if you spend hours and hours and days, months and years, you, you get eyes for it. Um, so Richard has good Martian eyes too. And Keith and so, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm looking at this shadow art. It's a figure, you know, a, a side profile, a bust of some Anunnaki person at part. This is at Park Avenue, and um, I noticed something by his lips. You know, I'm zooming in, and you have to have the sun. In Google Earth, you can move the sun around through the hours and minutes of the day, and it gives you the shadows. So, Remember that great scene in Indiana Jones, Nova, where he's standing there with the staff in the underground chamber? And the sun comes through at a certain angle and it lights up a temple in the model mm-hmm. in front of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. kind of like what, what uh, John has found. Mm-hmm. Because you mm-hmm. have all these V-shaped notches and specific lookouts that do not. I mean, I, 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 I live in the desert. Erosion grades stuff. It rounds stuff off. It doesn't produce in sandstone sharp edges. Mm-hmm. And these are like 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 rifle sights. It's like like a V pointing across a, a place you're supposed to look at to be constrained to view what's over there. there. There's such an organization. It reminds me an awful lot of my entry into this through the Martian doorway, in that we found a lot of artwork in the uh, published imagery from NASA. You know, the rovers, particularly on Mars. Well, this appears to be right here. And if you kind of stand back and you say, okay. If we're not the first, if there was an extraordinary history of millions of years or maybe close to 100, you know, the 66 million year Cretaceous tertiary boundary, all those succeeding civilizations trying to figure out who they were, who we were, would would do what we're doing. We're leaving time capsules, 15,000, according to Wikipedia, all over the world. You've now extended that on an organized fashion from Earth into the solar system. But are we the originators, even when Eric and I thought of the plaque idea, were we the first? No, it's part of a tradition. That's what humans do to speak from this generation to that which will come after. So if you look at the stuff in Utah and even some of the stuff down here in New Mexico as part of an ancient array a holographic array of time capsules because, you know, no single point failure. You want diversity. You want redundancy. You want to 
disperse them as widely as possible and make them so at one level they're obvious and at the other level they're not obvious back to, you know, a, a certain culture shouldn't find it until it's ready, that kind of thing. I think yeah. I think we're ready. And, and the way you tell the difference between natural erosion and artificial stuff is what Keith said very perceptively, you know, a few minutes ago, which is you look at the odds of all these things being clustered in one small location. What are the odds? Mm-hmm. And you can't really do a number, but you can do a qualitative guesstimate. And when I look at all this stuff, it appears to me that we're looking at something here on Earth, which is about 30,000 years old, given the erosion, which just happens to be the last time frame when we think the last guys on Mars had to transition to Earth because Mars no longer was the kind of place to raise your kids. Hmm. A lot of work to be done here and to be funded, <clears throat> audience, hint, hint, you know, um, we really need funding to, to, to mastermind all that's going to hit the fan in the next few months, given the moon, given what John and Keith are working on, given what, what uh, Andrew's going to talk about. We need more liquidity and the subscriptions to the show need to be upped. More people need to tell their friends and family and, you know, send Christmas presents to subscribe to the other side of midnight because this is where this frontline discussion and the opening of these answers is going to come through. It's not going to be YouTube. It's not going to be all the other talk shows. It's going to be right here on the other side of midnight. So if you want to keep us going, you might go to the website and kick in some money. Or you might send a set of subscriptions to your favorite friends and family so they can join what's going to happen. Because after 50 years of doing this, I see right in front of us now the end game because there are three missions en route to the moon before the end of the year. And one of them is going to take the right set of images to change everything. And Richard, as... The human race has a responsibility to follow up on Arches Park and to discover this great legacy that we have. And it would be a shame if anything happened to these ruins. They're already dilapidated. We need to get this sorted out pretty quickly. As I mentioned on the previous show, a couple of the arches have... uh, fallen into disrepair Um, other structures are crumbling and so there's some urgency and um, we just have a responsibility not to let this slip away and uh, I think we have great treasures awaiting us and you know wondrous cosmic things are 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 down the road I, I just feel it See, one of the things, Nova, that makes this doable on a citizen scientist budget is that you can basically take drones now and you can hover and with high-tech videography, you can literally duplicate the sight lines at, at morning, noon, and night at the given angles that they were supposed to be viewed from 
and you can fairly easily replicate and test the idea that certain features and structures were supposed to be viewed from certain geometry at certain times of day. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at the pictures. There's definitely some interesting pictures there. Well, I think yeah. John has prepared a, a much more elaborate backgrounder that he will send you because we're all going to exchange emails. I want to move now because we're kind of coming close to the bottom of the hour to Andrew. Andrew, uh, tell Nova how I co-opted you into the uh, uh, Didymos Dimorphos. Well, if it's not this, it's Mars or something <laughs> else. <laughs> so, uh, Nova, um, I'm one of the artists on the team. There's, there's a few of us actually that sketch around a bit, but um, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I I'm a storyboard artist and a and a, like an illustrator, so I do a lot of visualizing for film and television, and you know, try to interpret scripts or what a director wants. And so in this capacity, Richard sort of acts as my director in in this you know on the other side of midnight, and he'll come up with these these images that you know, yes, they've been enhanced, and you know, I I we're gonna look at one in a minute. And I even questioned him. I said, are you sure these aren't like little artifacts on, you know, when you do enhance? Because it does push the imagery, right? And he goes, no, no, it's not. And when I look, when I look very closely, I begin to see patterns. And I'm like, well, if that's an artifact, it's the most beautifully organized, geometrically pleasing designs that I've ever seen. And what, what I'm trying to say is that I, I look at these images of these 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 so-called asteroids, these these rocks or a collection of rubble in our solar system. The latest one being Didymos, with its um, twin little twin that had uh, orbited it, um, Dimorphos, which was sort of blasted into oblivion by NASA with the DART mission, you know, with their asteroid little bumping project. And you know, so many things have sort of spiraled out of that situation, and some of it is just the amazing imagery coming from these so-called artificial objects. I mean, so many of them have very specific shapes, uh, often, uh, you know, like diamond shapes or like what we're calling octahedron shapes, uh, double lobe shapes, which NASA at first said, oh, this is really rare, you know, two big giant rocks sort of slowly come together and kiss and then and then just sort of freeze. And it's we're finding these these what we're calling models all throughout the solar system. So Richard, do you want to add to anything I just said? I went on there. Okay, we've got three minutes of the bottom of the hour. What I'll do is I'll do the setup, then we'll come back and we'll go through images because this is really, uh, I think we stumbled over, NASA stumbled over a time capsule, and then they promptly destroyed it. I'm hoping that the Black Ops guys, the secret space program guys, went out and looted the places before they let NASA do what they did to it. But there's really interesting compelling evidence that these two objects didymos which is half a mile across and dimorphos which was 600 feet orbiting half a mile from each other in an original period of 11 hours 55 minutes now shortened by the impact to 11 hours 23 minutes so there's 32 33 minute change in the orbital period simply by smacking one of them with the with the spacecraft there is really compelling evidence that this in fact was an ancient deliberately designed time capsule for humanity and nasa instead of landing and going inside they did something incredibly horribly destructive and i'll walk through that with some of andrew's amazing new sketches when we return 
You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Didymos Dimorphos time capsule and pray to God there is a secret space program. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Sunday night, uh, Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight for October 22nd, 23rd. So let me kind of just jump right in here. Um, back in 1996, uh, some astronomers at the uh, Kitt Peak National Observatory, no, I'm sorry, uh, in, in uh, Hawaii at the uh, um, observatory there, found this little twinkling asteroid, about 15th magnitude, and they began to chart it. It's a near-Earth object. It, uh, at some point in the future, might wander across Earth's past with enough tweaking by the gravity of Jupiter or whatever. So they're trying to do a catalog of everything that's out there that crosses or comes near Earth's orbit, so they cataloged it. It wasn't until 2003 that another group at Kitt Peak um, found that it was twinkling, that every 11 hours, 55 minutes, it would eclipse or it would occult, that there was a smaller object orbiting uh, the bigger object, the big one half a mile across, the small one about 600 feet across, and the orbital period was 11 hours, 55 minutes. There began a project that kind of evolved, and there are, are, are uh, you know, links that we put up in past shows to how the concept of the DART mission, the direction, re, uh, the uh, uh, redirected asteroid test came about. The idea was that if we're serious about planetary defense and we don't want to follow the dinosaurs, could do nothing about the object that uh, uh, smacked into the Yucatan, that we needed to take NASA technology and with our current rather primitive uh, ways of moving things around, which is bumping into them, called kinetic energy exchange, 
uh, we might be able to hit an asteroid or comet heading toward the Earth if we found it far enough in the past so that by moving it even by a few millimeters per second over a decade or two decades or 50 years, you could move it so that it would not intersect the Earth when the Earth was at that place in space where both would come together rather catastrophically. So that was the origin of the idea of DART. And so about 10 months ago, after several years of uh, funding at various levels, uh, they launched from uh, the Cape. And uh, 10 months later, last uh, September 26th at 614, I'm sorry, 714 in the evening East Coast time, the DART spacecraft, which is about the size of a vending machine, weighed about 1,200 pounds, smacked into Dimorphos, the smaller 600-foot uh, wide object, at something like four miles per second, which is about 20,000 or 21,000 feet per second, and then all hell broke loose. Because the original idea was that given the known mass of the system, when you have two objects orbiting each other in space, given uh, uh, Kepler's laws, you can figure out their combined mass, given the distance and how fast they go around each other. That's how we were able to measure the mass of the Earth relative to the mass of the Sun, et cetera, et cetera, long before sophisticated telescopes. Anyway, so they measured the combined mass of this system, Didymos and Dimorphos, and it was several billions and billions of tons, like maybe uh, 50, 60 uh, billion tons. But we don't know how it's apportioned between the main object, the half-mile object, and Dimorphos. All we knew was that the one was big and the other was about one-fifth the size, and the assumption was they were made of the same stuff with the same density, and under that calculation, they thought that by slamming into it with a spacecraft moving at four miles per second, at a minimum, they might change the orbit of the little guy around the big guy by about 73 seconds. On other assumptions, they said, well, maybe it could be as much as 10 minutes. In fact, when they smashed the dark spacecraft into Dimorphos, the change was 32 minutes, plus or minus two minutes, meaning it could have been a 33-minute change. Well, this, of course, really captures my attention because when I went back and looked in the celestial mechanics, and we're going to be talking tomorrow night with Rick Levine about the astrology of this, it turns out that the time they picked to slam the spacecraft into Dimorphos was not at random. They picked the time when in its orbit, it's within 7 million tetrahedral miles of Earth and at minus 33 degrees south declination in the celestial map of the sky. Oh, and seven degrees above the eastern horizon in Washington, D.C. So we've got a minus 33 degree coordinate. We've got a 33 minute change. This tells me that somebody knew something beyond what is in the public domain and that this in fact was a directed experiment to either change this asteroid motion in a safe way as a precursor of the planetary defense kinetic strategy, as they say, or 
the mission was a cover for something much more extraordinary, i.e. these two objects, which are unique in the solar system in that their orbit literally passed through the Earth, which means they eclipsed each other and occulted each other every half orbit. And the fact that it was an 11-hour, 55-minute orbit, I did a kind of a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and it's very easy within known celestial mechanics and known effects and influences of uh, sunlight and infrared radiation and the Yerkob-Jakob effect and all that, that in fact the original orbit period of the one object around the other was exactly 12 hours. In fact, in one of the mainstream papers, the authors list the orbital period as 12 hours, and only later do they keep talking about 11 hours, 55 minutes. So they wanted to communicate to their readership that maybe originally this thing orbited in exactly 12 hours, which of course is half the rotation period of Earth. This object appears, these two objects appears to my untutored eye as the kind of beacon-like time capsule nova that we have been discussing for most of tonight's show, designed to get our attention, to have us send a spacecraft and go inside and find what someone left for a future spacefaring civilization when it could develop the technology again to go out and find what its great, great, great ancestors had deliberately left it in the solar system. Now, of course, for all this to be true, there are certain parts of the experiment that should be available even in the published non-top-secret data, such as this incredible orbit change, which so exceeded their wildest expectations. If you go by the idea that the overall mass of the system is what had been measured, and its apportionment between the big guy and the small guy is the question. In other words, how massive is the satellite compared to the primary? One way of deciding whether this was an artificial construct would be in that extraordinary, totally unanticipated, totally unpublished 33-minute orbit change. Because what that means in the simple F equals and the equation is that the density of dimorphos, instead of being the equivalent of the rocky material that makes up um, um, uh, didymos, something like 2.7 uh, kilograms per cubic meter, you divide the density by a factor of three, given the change that's been observed. That puts it down in the densities of ships, like aircraft carriers, or big buildings, like the World Trade Center, the Empire State Building, etc. In other words, it really reaffirms the idea that this could have been a carefully constructed time capsule system with extraordinary goodies. And instead of going and exploring it, NASA, in their first public mission, went and blew it to kingdom come. 
which brings me now to Andrew. Because as part of the DART mission, there was a main spacecraft which had a super telescope camera called Draco. And then it kicked out the back door about 10 days before the encounter, a little CubeSat from the Italians called uh, Lycia Cube, um, which consisted of a little 12U CubeSat with two cameras, a wide-angle color camera called provocatively Luke, and a narrow-angle telescopic camera of extraordinary capability called Leah. And in the entire time, in the three going now on four weeks since the impact, the Italians and NASA have only given us the last few frames of the Draco camera as they flew past Didymos and then smashed into Dimorphos. And they've only given us the wide-angle color images of the post-impact explosion cloud from Dimorphos as the little CubeSat flew past, we've seen none of the high-resolution Leah images in black and white. And the excuse was, well, the explosion was so vast and so unexpected that the cloud of material obscured their view, so there were no usable pictures. However, In the data stream, two weeks ago, another amazing image of Didymos suddenly appeared without attribution, and given the resolution that it contains, I think that was a leaked image of Didymos, which someone put out on the web, masquerading as one of the last images of the Draco camera on the suicide-bound spacecraft. And when you blow it up and you look at it in detail, if you go to my section of Radio with Pictures and look at items five, left is that image. Number five is the uh, color Luke image of the flyby after the explosion. Item number six is a further image from the flyby after the explosion or impact. And item number seven is the farthest away. And what's really interesting is number eight, because here we have two close-ups of this black and white image, which I think is from the Leah camera. And on those images, crystal clear, there are three-dimensional buildings and architecture and arches and esplanades and plazas and overhangs, and all of the kind of complex, urban, three-dimensional geometry that you would expect in any high-tech city on Earth, except they're sitting on the surface of a tiny one-half-mile-wide object that's been represented as a, an asteroid and, in fact, looks like one component of a two-component time capsule that again, NASA flew over 10 months and then blew up. But that's not the end of the story. So Andrew, pick it up from there. Okay. 
Richard, I don't know when you when you breathed in that 15 minutes, but that was amazing. I feel like applauding you. That was excellent. Um, yeah, if we look at Richard's number eight, I focused on the right side. And so if we come out of that and go to my items, so under me, and you go to my number two. So Richard asked me to sort of have a close look at this. And as I said, I, you know, I go, well, Richard, you know, when we, when we enhance these things, are we looking at artifacts? And Richard, can you explain why these aren't artifacts? Well, they know geometric presence. In other words, if you take a small sphere, let's assume, you know, you, 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 you take an asteroid and you build stuff all over it, like it's going to be a, uh, like, like, a, like an urban landscape with skyscrapers and all that. At the edge, they'll be sticking up at right angles to your line of sight. Down toward the center, if you're looking through the, the plazas toward the center of the asteroid, you'll be looking at their roofs because they geometrically know where down is, where the center of gravity is, whereas pixels or JPEG aberrations or some other kind of uh, noise in a digital system, it has no idea of geometric consciousness so everything would be in one plane. The structures on Didymos are in three dimensions in the way the photographs can be looked from limb to the center, and they show geometric consciousness, which artifacts in a camera or in a computer have no way of calculating or presenting. Yeah, so what I did is I put a, a white box around a small area, and then I started to do some sketching, and wow. Uh, <laughs> Is that yeah. your professional artistic opinion? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm either bringing out my inner Kirby, because these, again, um, uh, Nova, you, you know Jack Kirby, very famous comic book artist, created like pretty much the whole Marvel universe that we see now on film. And a lot of his sort of planetary stuff and the things that he would show on moons and planetoids – had these peculiar shapes and lines, and I, I put a little sample there. It's from a comic called The Legends from 1986. But literally, this is what I'm seeing, and anybody can go in and have a close look. And I focused on these two, uh, what almost looked to me like uh, protru protrusions, uh, buildings. And I sort of progressively just did some sketching, and I was just trying to follow the, the lines. And what, what I find is when I sort of follow these patterns is that they start to make sense. There's just this sort of um, organization that, oh, wow, that goes there, and that feels good, and, 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 and I, I just kind of follow it and then try to bring it out. So what I did is I did three little um, sketches and then brought it into Photoshop and just gave it a bit of, of shadow, shadowing, again, focusing on these two particular spots, which sort of line up with my oh, white you, box. Oh, you, you picked my favorite skyscraper there near the bottom. Yeah, and and then I and then as you guys were talking, I I thought because I just love to doodle, I I, I just go I, I gotta put these in a little bit better perspective, you know, from my perspective and my imagination. So if we go come out and go to number three, oh, you got a three, okay. Yeah, and that's kind of loosely what I'm sort of seeing, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I, again, this is one of those things okay, where I could we, spend. We have to refresh then, okay. Ref Refresh, and yeah. Click on Andrew. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, there. Yes, you got you got the skyscraper. Yeah. Including, look at the helipad. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable. And there's layers. Yep. Yep. And there's nodules, and there's turns, and 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 go to the limb. You can literally see skins 
like 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 layers of epidermal epidermal um, layering, you know, like 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 structural epidermis. Well, if you go uh, back to number two, and I put it on my side by side comparison, but number two shows clearly, you can see there's a sharp edge, and then above it, there's all this weird geometric mm-hmm. stuff that's just kind of hanging in space. What is that? My interpretation. Well, yeah. Or do you want to go first? No, 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 no. You go, Richard. Yeah. My interpretation is this thing used to be bigger. It's incredibly old. It may be as old as the, the war, six to six million years. And they carefully set it up so that they took the best preserved one and made it into a time capsule. And they brought it from somewhere else and parked it where it is in that orbit. And what you're seeing at the edge and all that geometry that kind of fades away into space you're seeing the upper levels of architecture and structure, which has been so bitten away by countless micrometeorite bombardment. It's now a filigree, a pale tissue, like, like cigarette smoke compared to the more solid, still remaining stuff underneath. And it forms like a meteor bumper because every small object is going to have to go through that upper layer to get to what we see in the geometry and it's going to destroy more of the upper layer. So it's kind of like it's shrinking. It's dissolving from the outside in. And depending upon how long it lasts and how much of it is left after NASA's stupid experiment, at some point it will disappear because erosion will erode it away completely from all sides. But at the moment, there's a half a mile of it left with a few hundred feet of destroyed overstructure of geometry and buildings and esplanades and whatever that are totally lost now because they've been blown by little micro hypervelocity impacts to hell and gone. You know, when I, when I, um, I zoom way in um, to that region of the image, I see behind the filigree, another area that's sort of dark, it's light, but solid. Mm-hmm. And one, one, different interpretation of what I'm seeing there is that you've got a kind of a ridge and then on the other side of the ridge, what you're calling the filigree is really a whole bunch of ridges that are catching the light, but there's a lot of shadow as well on the, on the sort of the, the downside of the ridge, if you will, there's a, there's a lit side of the ridge that's all white. And then the filigree is the shadow side of the ridge, but with pieces of it catching some of the light, um, but deeper shadows because it's mostly shadow. And then if you kind of just continue to go back, you're seeing, you know, more of the surface that's in the dark. So and not, what I see there is I originally saw the filigree, but when I zoomed way, way in, um, it looks like it could be a ridge. Um, and then yeah, that's just the other side of the ridge. Yeah, it's geometry and there are separate pieces to it. It's not one yeah. solid object. It's arrayed yeah. in a geometry and it has its right. own coherent architecture. Yeah. And, and, and the test for this is if you look at my full frame, which is part of the two image composite, the black and white uh, Leah image on the left and the mm-hmm. color Luke image on the right, you, what you do is you look at where the shadow, the terminator on the left-hand side of the Leah image cuts across. And if you look carefully against the shadow, you will see these faint translucent geometries suspended above the dark, meaning they have to be in light and what's black behind them is not seeing sunlight 
So you're seeing them lit against the black background, mm-hmm. which means they're three-dimensional. They're in 3D space. They're above. Your model is a good idea, but the tests prove it can't be right. Mm. The more you look at this, the more you're going to see. Yeah. You just need to live with it. You know? it, it. It is odd that there's an abrupt change like that. And then, you know, it's just, it's a, it is odd. Well, given that we've got umpteen asteroid images from, from NASA and the Europeans, I've never seen this on any other object. The only yeah. other place where I've seen this, and you know where I'm going, right, Nova? Yeah. The moon. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when you quietly, inevitably, over eons, erode away a geometric architectural layering. Yeah, I guess you could say it looks like a scaffolding, doesn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Well, well, Nova, one of the things that – and I mean this is just a personal take, but when this whole episode happened and and the controllers at NASA were jumping for joy when they flew past – uh, Didymos and smacked into Dimorphos, and the whole thing, you know, hammered away. I I got a visceral <laughs> sense of th- of doom. Like this was not a good thing. I, I I totally understand the experiment. I get the reasons for it, but I was really bothered by this. And you know, Richard, I don't know if you want to talk about the what we think about the consciousness side of this. I mean, it, look, if if this was a temple or a a a, a um, archive like what you're talking about the desecration of that it it was like a disturbance in the force i, I maybe i'm being a bit you know um, dramatic but it just it, it just was like a gut gut kick a kick to kick to the gut and then bothered me and okay it, it just, we, we, we've got less than 10 minutes and i want to get yeah. to something important so let's get out of andrew's number two and go back to my number oh where am i going here i need to go and find my name so i can go to it quickly here we are Okay, Uh, go to six and seven. Um, We're supposed to be looking in six and seven at an asteroid with a satellite where NASA smacked into it, basically created a big crater, and there was a whole bunch of ejector, right? Nova? Okay. Okay. But when you look at Dimorphos, which is at the bottom of each of the images, uh, number six is just after they flew past Number seven is much farther away, looking back. Um, Notice the bizarre black cubic geometry where Dimorphos used to be. And in the bottom image, that's a little tetrahedron in the middle of the black cube, Mm -hmm. which is totally bizarre unless, and this is where the Kozarev and De Palma and other experiments come in, in smacking this object with a spacecraft at um, four miles per second, the amount of energy imparted to Dimorphos was between 4,000 and 6,000 pounds of TNT. You do that just from the kinetic energy calculation. With me so far? Sure. The amount of energy released was so much larger that NASA has been scrambling for three weeks to explain where the excess energy came from. And they had this stupid press release written by somebody who never even obviously took high school physics. And when you read it, you'll just burst out laughing and then you'll feel very bad because it means they're lying to us desperately 
because they don't have any idea what they did. Remember, this is all compartmentalized in this political model. There's higher level people that knew what they were doing. They got the lower level underlings to do it, thinking they were carrying out a certain experiment. But in fact, the experiment as is a much higher, deeper level. And the level is to experiment with hyperdimensional energy release on a planetary scale in the solar system, which has not taken place for, at a minimum, tens of thousands of years, the same guys that maybe left us something in Utah, or on the worst case scenario, hasn't taken place for millions of years since the Great War back 66 million years ago, which wiped out an entire species that would have been intelligent reptiles. Anyway, I looked at the cloud of material that came off that was published as part of the NASA press conference uh, last Tuesday. And I looked at it and I thought, holy cow, it's got geometry. So you got two minutes, Andrew. Go to your number one. Andrew? Sorry, I was on. Yeah, I was on mute. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, my number one, which I've now. Oh, my gosh. Uh, here we go. Uh, yep. Sorry, guys. I'm just oh, I'm getting through it. Yes. Here it is. There it is. Okay, yeah. Go to my number one. And what we – so this is the explosion, and this is the material coming out, Nova. And what I did is a real quick sketch. And we began to talk about this saying that this is almost like a floor plan. And I put you know, the old Space 1999 moon base off of there. And then we started to talk about – and I started to rotate the images. If you go to my bottom that says Gothic Guts, hmm. we think this is a 3D representation of literally the – the interior of dimorphous which if you go to the next image beside it mimics mm-hmm. massive gothic that are here on earth and richard do you want to take over no because we're at the end of the show <laughs> but tomorrow night and we're going to continue this conversation off the air tomorrow night i'm having rick levine come on and the reason i'm having him come on is because we're trying to do a back engineering of the astrology the hyperdimensional astrology of what would have happened if hitting Dimorphos opened up a hyperdimensional gate into another dimension and a whole bunch of energy came through. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. See you tomorrow night. <laughs>